0: Greetings, Dr. Beckett. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast.
1: Theorizing that one could time travel within his own lifetime, Dr. Sam Beckett led an elite group of scientists into the desert to develop a top-secret project known as Quantum Leap. Pressured to prove his theories or lose
0: funding, Dr. Beckett prematurely stepped into the project Accelerator. In the blink of a cosmic clock, I went from quantum physicist to Air Force test pilot, which could have been fun, if I knew how to fly. Fortunately, I had help, an observer from the project named Al. Unfortunately, Al's a hologram, so all he can lend is moral support. Anyway, here I am, bouncing around in time, putting things right that once went wrong. A sort of time-traveling Lone Ranger with Al as my tanto, and I don't even need a mask.
2: You are listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. This is episode 16,
3: Jimmy.
0: Mr. Samuels asks, you're not retarded. You're just slow. He's going to get the job today.
4: And what if he doesn't? Huh? What if he doesn't? I'm retarded. No, you're not retarded, Sam. Jimmy is. He's got the IQ of someone like 12 years old. Oh, boy. Anyway, he thinks you're here to, to mainstream Jimmy. Of course, in 64, they didn't mainstream the mentally handicapped. They locked him up in institutions, which is where Jimmy's been. And that's where he's going to end up. That's what you're here to do. That. Make friends with your fellow workers.
3: If you don't keep this monster away from my kids, I'll have him arrested. People like him belong in an institution. Don't
5: tell me where my brother belongs, all right? Jimmy, God bless you. I didn't
1: understand. Please forgive me. Thank you,
2: John. Welcome back to the Quantum Leap podcast. My name is Albie. And I'm Heather. We have a great show for you today. We have not one, but two interviews, two actors from this episode of Quantum Leap. We have John DiAquino, who played Frank LaMata, Jimmy's brother. And we have Brad Silverman, who played Jimmy. That's pretty awesome.
3: Two main characters of this
2: episode. So that's a special treat.
3: What did you think about this episode?
2: This is in my group of favorites. This is one of probably the top five episodes when I think of Quantum Leap, I think of this one, as well as the other one with the same actors in it. It's uh, one I look forward to when I'm watching Quantum Leap.
3: Yeah, how was it talking to them?
2: I think I was always destined to talk to John DiAquino because... Before we started the Quantum Leap podcast, the three podcasts that were bouncing around my head was Quantum Leap, Sequest DSV, and Sliders. And he's in all three of them.
3: So you were destined to interview him. How cool.
2: It was pretty awesome. And it was so great that he took the time to talk with us.
3: And you got to talk to Brad because of your connection with John DiAquino.
2: Yeah. While talking to John, he suggested that Brad would be up for talking to us, so he put us in touch with him, and it was great. We got to talk to him and ask him a few questions, and it's really cool that we got to talk to him because this is a fan-favorite episode. Not everybody likes this episode, but a lot of fans do. What did you think?
3: It wasn't one of my favorites because um, it actually it just breaks my heart how people treat Jimmy in this episode. I mean, it's, it's a good episode, and it ends on a really good note, and I'm happy the way it ended, but it's still not... A happy episode. <laughs> I mean, it, it's sad. I, I found out a lot of information I didn't know before watching the episode. I didn't know how differently abled people would be treated in the 1960s. I just didn't assume they were put in institutions and killed. I mean, that's kind of what they were hinting at in this episode. And that just really upset me. I, 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 I don't know. I'm very speechless with this one. I can see
2: your point of view watching this episode and not having seen the other episodes with the same characters in them. The episode I'm talking about is Deliver Us From Evil, where we meet Jimmy and Frank and Connie again, and I think that influences my affinity for this episode. Also, I like the character of Jimmy, even though everybody else except his brother is really mean to Jimmy. I like how Sam as Jimmy is strong, and I like his personality.
3: Yeah, I agree. I like that he, you know, tells Frank it's to ignore the bullying and stuff like that. I, yeah, I, I don't know.
2: The way I can explain it is when you do see Jimmy and Frank again, it's a very heartwarming feeling and a happy feeling because you see them again.
3: That's good. I, I have to say, I, I really do like this episode. I, I don't dislike this episode. I like the the relationship that Jimmy has with Corey, and I like the way that Corey views him as a person. And it kind of gives you an idea of how we don't start out with the prejudices that we have. And it's nice to see that, you know, we don't start out as evil, bullying people, that we start out having a view that we like people for who they are. I mean, when you hear Corey, he doesn't understand why people don't like Jimmy and it's great that we're kind of like that now, you know, as adults, we think like that now, like we don't understand how someone can be so mean to someone else. And that at least gives me hope that we start out with this great outlook on other people. So I I really do like the Corey and Jimmy relationship. And Frank is a really good big brother. And he does have to choose between his brother and his wife, which can kind of be rough sometimes to have to deal with your family that you grew up with and your spouse that you love and chose to be with. It's kind of a balance that you have to deal with. And I know he was in a rough spot there, but he tried to do what was best. So everybody tried to do their best. And in the end, Connie did say she was wrong. So everybody was pretty good in the end. Everybody accepted him and that was awesome.
2: This episode has to do with differently abled people, people with Down syndrome, it has to do with bullying, it has to do with dyslexia, it has to do with a lot of things, and I'm looking forward to talking about them with you after the episode recap.
3: This is Season 2, Episode 8, Jimmy. Original broadcast date, November 22nd, 1989, written by Paul M. Bellis, directed by Robert A. Walterstorff. Sam finds himself lying upside down in a bedroom, wearing children's pajamas and slippers. A young boy, Corey, shoots him with a toy ray gun and asks if he's going to die, and Sam dramatically plays dead. Corey's father, Frank, comes in and says that Jimmy needs to get dressed for his first day of work, and tells him that he won't always be there for him. As he opens the closet door, a mirror reveals Sam's new body. Frank says he had to pull some strings to get Sam the interview, and tells him that if anyone asks, he's just slow, he's not retarded. Frank goes down to breakfast and greets his wife, Connie, who complains she didn't get much sleep the previous night. She explains that she's been thinking about Jimmy, and Frank insists that the doctor believes Jimmy is ready to be out on his own. Connie is already uncomfortable with having Jimmy in the house, and it's only been two weeks. Sam comes in to have breakfast, and Frank plays with him and Corey, much to Connie's irritation. Sam reads the paper and discovers he's in Oakland on October 14th, 1964. Frank is surprised to see that Sam is reading the front page rather than the comics. Corey leaves for school and Connie tells him to come home early and not play at the wharf. As he leaves with Sam, Frank assures Connie that everything will be fine and Jimmy is family. As Sam gets up, he spills the milk and Connie tells him to go. As he leaves, Connie mistakes Sam's unfamiliarity for Jimmy's typical behavior. Al appears and talks with Sam outside. He assures Sam that Jimmy is retarded, not Sam, and that Jimmy has an IQ of a 12-year-old. Al tells Sam to act normally, as someone at Jimmy's level can read, write, and hold a job. As they talk, Connie looks out the window and sees Sam apparently talking to himself. Meanwhile, Al assures Sam he knows what he's going through and admits that Ziggy is having mood swings. However, the computer thinks that Sam is there to mainstream Jimmy, and they didn't have mainstreaming in 1964. Jimmy's been in an institution and will end up there again unless Sam changes things. As Frank calls Sam over, Al tells him to make sure and get the job. Frank drives to his job at the wharf and goes to clock in. One of the workers, Blue, taunts Sam. Frank starts to go after the man, but Sam restrains him. He then talks Sam through everything he has to do, repeating things several times. He insists that he'll love Sam no matter what. Frank's boss, Charlie Samuels, admits that he has concerns. He talks to Sam very loudly and warns that people have to watch out for each other. Samuels points out that Sam is retarded, but Sam insists that he can still do the work. Sam gets the job. As he greets his fellow workers, Al arrives and tells him that that's what he's here to do. Make friends and prove that Jimmy can function normally. However, he warns that Sam has more to do and makes sure that Jimmy can hold on. Al talks about Jackie Robinson and how he had to take a lot of abuse before he was accepted as a baseball player. Sam points out it could take a while. As he wheels a card around a corner, Blue hits it with a forklift and insults him. Later, Frank and Sam are eating on the pier and Sam says the guys are treating him okay. Frank wishes that their father was alive to see it, and says he'd be proud. The toughest day of his life was when he had to put Jimmy into an institution. Frank apologizes that he couldn't get him out any sooner, but insists that Sam can stay with them as long as he wants. When Sam asks about Connie, Frank says that she didn't grow up with someone like Jimmy. As they talk, Sam accidentally knocks Frank's thermos into the water. He briefly gets mad, but then says it's no problem. As Sam continues working, Blue and the other workers pick a fight. Blue tries to provoke Sam, who finally defends himself. Frank breaks it up and Blue warns him to keep Sam away from him. The shift whistle blows and they head for home. As they clock out, Frank warns Sam to stay away from Blue. Sam insists on clocking out himself, but messes it up and finally tears it. The brothers return home and Connie congratulates Sam. Frank suggests that Sam and Corey play catch. Once they're gone, Connie says that she doesn't like him encouraging Sam to play with Corey, and is worried he might hurt the boy. Frank insists that Jimmy loved Corey and would never hurt him. As Sam and Corey play football, Sam inadvertently throws the ball into the neighbor's yard. The neighbor boy, Peter Kirksey, calls Sam a moron and Corey attacks him. Sam tries to break it up and Mrs. Kirksey attacks Sam, thinking he's assaulting her son. Frank comes over and Mrs. Kirksey says that she'll call the police and Sam belongs in an institution. And Frank orders Sam inside. Inside, Corey insists that he was the one who was fighting and that Pete called Sam a dummy. Frank stands up for Corey, but Connie tells her son to make sure it doesn't happen again. Sam tries to apologize, and when Frank comes to his defense, Connie gets angry and says they have to watch him every second. She storms off and Frank goes after her. Later, Frank is cleaning the truck and Sam tries to help. Frank warns him that he has to be careful, but Sam insists that he didn't try to hurt anyone. He also asks Sam to be on his best behavior. He notices that Sam has scratched the paint, and then Sam messes up with the hose. Frank sends him inside, and he tries to set the dishes. Al startles him, and Sam admits that he's hurting Jimmy more than helping him. As Connie comes in, she bumps the door into Sam, causing him to drop her grandmother's platter. Sam goes outside, and Al explains he's feeling the pressure of everyone treating him like he's retarded. Sam insists it isn't going to work, but Al said there was a girl named Trudy who was retarded, worse than Jimmy. He got in fights over it with other kids and explains that Trudy was his little sister. Their mother couldn't handle it and ran off with an encyclopedia salesman. Their father tried to keep them together, but when his job took him to the Middle East, Al ended up in an orphanage and Trudy was put in an institution. By the time Al found where she was, she had died of pneumonia. Al angrily insists that they're not going to lose Jimmy. As Sam goes to bed, Corey asks him to read their bedtime story. They start to read a horror comic, and Corey wonders why people are mean to Sam. He explains that people don't know him and are afraid, and that Connie is trying. Sam makes up a story based on Star Wars. The next day, Sam is working at the wharf, and Mr. Samuels says that he's doing a good job. The boss then calls Blue over and tells him to pull Batch 1675. Blue claims he's busy, but Samuels tells him to do it now. He drives over and pulls Batch 7516. Sam notices and tries to point out his error. Blue insults him again and complains to Samuels. When Sam defends himself, Samuels realizes that Blue pulled the wrong Batch. Blue claims he thought Samuels pointed at the crate he pulled, and Samuels tells him just to go by the number he said. Sam continues to mop the floor and avoid any incidents, however Blue drives by and his forklift skids out of control. Blue says there's solvent all over the floor, but Sam insists that he turned it off. Frank leaps to his defense again but ignores Sam's claim, believing his brother screwed up by standing by him. Blue refuses to work with Sam anymore and Samuels tells Frank he's letting Sam go. When Sam tries to intervene, Frank tells him to stay out of it and say if Sam is fired, he'll quit. Samuel stands by his decision and Frank walks off, and Sam goes after him. Frank finally snaps and says he can't watch Sam all the time, and that Sam has no idea if he let the solvent leak or not. He orders Sam into the truck and Sam reluctantly gets in. At home, Frank tells Connie the news. He insists he'll get another job, but she wonders what happens when Jimmy messes up that job too. Connie says he doesn't belong, and she tells him to take Jimmy back to the institution. She says they've all tried, but it's not working and never will. Sam is helping Corey fix his bike when Al shows up, angry that Sam got fired. Sam insists it wasn't his fault and refuses to apologize. Al apologizes for getting angry, and Sam says he'll get another job. Frank comes out and tells Jimmy that he's going back to the institution while Frank finds another job. Al checks the files and warns that if Jimmy goes back into the institution, he'll never come out again. Sam agrees much to Al's surprise and anger. Once Frank is gone, Sam reveals he stole the truck keys from Frank's pocket. He drives back to the wharf to get his job back, unaware that Corey has overheard him. Frank and Connie hear the truck start up and run out to see Sam drive away. Corey rides after him before his parents can stop him. At the wharf, Sam tries to convince Samuels to rehire him. Cory climbs up on some crates to watch as Sam accuses Blue of turning on the spigot to get him fired. Blue denies it, but Sam says that Blue did it because Sam found out his secret. He asks Blue to read the numbers on a crate and Blue refuses. And Sam explains that Blue is dyslexic. Blue hates him because he thinks that Sam is smarter. Samuels realizes that Blue set the whole thing up, offers Sam his job back, and tells Blue that he is fired. As they go to call Frank, Blue tries to run Sam over. Sam dives out of the way and Blue hits the crates with his forklift. As Frank and Connie arrive, Corey is knocked into the water and Frank dives in after him. Frank finds his son, but he's swallowed a lot of water. He brings him up onto the pier and Sam tries to pull him up, but Connie tells him to get away. Corey isn't breathing and Sam says he can help. He tells Frank that the boy needs mouth-to-mouth resuscitation and claims they taught it to him at the institution. Frank lets him try, and Sam begins the procedure. It doesn't work, and he tries CPR. Corey finally chokes up the water and revives as the workers applaud. Al confirms that Sam got Jimmy accepted. Connie thanks Sam and asks for his forgiveness. Frank embraces his brother as Sam leaps.
2: Thank you so much, Heather, for that. That was a long one.
3: Yes, it was. But it was my pleasure.
2: It was very detailed. I think we got that one off of TVRage.com.
3: Yeah, that was definitely a play-by-play of the episode. So thank you. So I think the reason why I'm really iffy on this episode is because I have a cousin who has learning disabilities. He's not really diagnosed with anything. He doesn't have Down syndrome. But he is one of a set of triplets and he is the oldest one, and he was on the bottom in the belly. So I think that he just got deprived of nutrients and all that during his creation. He is a great person. He's 13 or 14 now, and he gives the best hugs, and he is such a goofball. His nickname is Scoob, like Scooby, and I've seen him grow up since he was a little baby. He- is such an inspiring person he has won medals in the special olympics last year and he loves sports and he gets to spend a lot of time with his parents because they're homeschooling him now and it was really hard because he has a brother and a sister who don't have any learning disabilities and they're just normal teenagers and his whole life has been compared to them as you know where he is on the scale and i know that that's rough for him and also for them because it's just a tough situation. But I think that knowing him and knowing that there was a time when he would be treated the way Jimmy was treated, I just can't imagine. I like It just breaks my heart that he would have been treated like that. And I just think that it affected me that way. But I'm, I'm so glad that we're in a different age now. It gives me so much hope for our society that we've come so far in 50 years. It's, that's awesome. For
2: most of humanity's existence, people with learning disabilities or Down syndrome or people that are differently abled in one way or another were treated very cruelly. They were either put in a basement, in an attic. Unfortunately, some of them were killed. Or they were put in homes and just treated like less than human. And they weren't taken care of. And um, that's why they died. Uh, The scene where Al talks about Trudy is really... Really, what happened back then to people,
3: yeah, see that i I just can't I can't imagine, and Dean Stockwell did such a great job because you could see the heartbreak on his face. It was rough in that aspect, but you know the the great thing about this episode is the turnaround, the mainstreaming that they try to do in this episode that is great i mean it's it's great that people are starting to realize in this episode that they're just like everybody else. your i q doesn't measure how much of a human you are, how much of a person you are. So it's awesome that they show, just in the Quantum Leap way, like they always do, that everybody is the same and we're all equal. And Quantum Leap does a great job at at showing the right way to do things.
2: Well, in this episode, they use the word retarded. And as a society, we don't use that word as much anymore. The reason it applies, especially back then, is because retarded means to hold something back. You retard something. And retarded refers to not the person maybe with Down syndrome, but the people around them holding that person back. And that's why they're retarded. Not because they're differently abled, but because people around them didn't give them a chance to succeed. And what we found now as a society, thankfully, is if you give them the equal opportunity and the same chance as everyone else, they're very capable of being mainstreamed or taking care of themselves or living on their own and uh, there are many examples of that now.
3: Well yeah I think that if you tell someone that they can't work, that they can't go to school, that they're too stupid to do something, then they're not they're not gonna do it. I mean if you give someone room to grow and to be their own person, I'm sure that they'll surprise you and things that they can do. I would hate to think of anybody being restricted and being able to learn, and being able to function as a human, there are basic needs that we have as humans to learn new things, to learn about our surroundings, to interact with other people. You can't lock somebody up in a room and expect that to solve the problem. And I know that people who had who were sent to the quote unquote loony bin, I know that there was lots of testing done on on people to try and fix them. And who knows what happened behind those closed doors. It's a scary thought to think of. And that's why Al was so passionate in this episode to fix the situation so Jimmy didn't have to go back. He knew that Sam could make it okay for Jimmy because he didn't want Jimmy to be in the same shoes that Trudy was in. And I like when Al gets mad at him and Sam's like, you're mad at me too for something I didn't do. But Sam doesn't come from the same background that Al did with his sister. You know, Al was very, very adamant on not getting Jimmy sent back to the institution. And that was great to see more of Al's backstory. I always love when we learn more about our characters and it was nice to see. I mean, not that it was a good story, poor Al, (laughs) but it was nice to get a little bit more of the the puzzle that is Al.
2: Normally at that point of the episode, I would give the character of Al some crap for knowing everything or, (laughs) or having an experience of everything. But quite the opposite in this episode. I think when he talks about his sister, Trudy, I've seen this episode just this past week five times. And every single time that Al talks about Trudy, I start to tear up. And I believe that scene. And it's as real as it can get for a TV show. Dean Stockwell
3: puts his emotions behind that part. Definitely.
2: And that part makes Al more than a two-dimensional character.
3: I agree. Yeah, I definitely agree. There was a lot of heartfelt moments in this episode and Al's scene about his sister was definitely one of them and I know that if he was more than a hologram he would be doing anything he could to help in this situation especially when when he gets mad at Sam and Sam agrees to go back to the institution and you can see Al like what are you doing you're ruining everything I was really shocked at that point because I didn't know he had the car keys the first time I watched it and I'm like I'm so confused. Like, what is he going to do? Is he going to break out of the institution? What is he going to do? And I loved the fact that he stole the keys and he took off in the truck. And that was an awesome move for me. Anyway, I like that part.
2: I think Scott Bakula did really good at playing Sam and Jimmy at the same time.
3: The only thing that I was kind of surprised at is the fact that he kept saying he was retarded. Like, I'm surprised that Sam would say that. It wasn't
2: a bad word back then. It really wasn't. So, Like in the
3: 80s, you mean? Right. In okay. 1989,
2: when this took place, it wasn't considered a slur. Okay. It was considered like a definition. But now the definition of retarded is, like I said earlier, someone being held back.
3: Well, I th- I guess just now there's a negative connotation to the word. That was just weird to me that he used that word. But I guess if you're saying it wasn't really a negative word back then, then...
2: Now we've found out that if you don't retard someone, if you don't hold someone back then they have as much potential as any of us.
3: Right. Well, you know, I have to say I'm guilty of using that word or have been in the past, but I did not know the definition that you have informed me while we started watching this episode. I think that a lot of people don't know the definition of the word.
2: Well, I've seen a lot on Instagram because I search Quantum Leap on Instagram all the time. And once a month, some kid puts up a clip of Sam saying I'm retarded and then they're laughing. So it's kind of sad.
3: Yeah. We're not all perfect. No,
2: but (laughs) I don't double tap those.
3: No. You know, I, I have to say the thing with Down syndrome is you can see someone and have an assumption about them by looking at their face because of the facial structure that is affected by the extra chromosome, which is an unfortunate thing for the person who's making that judgment because you don't know them. You don't know who they are. And they say in this episode that Jimmy has the IQ of a 12 year old, right? I've met really awesome 12 year olds (laughs) and some that are really intelligent. So I I don't know how you can make that judgment. And, you know, some people feel pity for that person or, you know, they just assume that they're less intelligent, but it's an extra chromosome. (laughs) I mean,. There was a great blog post. There was a woman who it was her third kid and she gave birth and as soon as she did she knew that her daughter had down syndrome and she didn't know what to feel. She cried because she was so upset because she knew that her daughter's life would be rough. And then she was upset cuz she cried because she was upset because she judged her baby and I mean I can't even imagine the roller coaster of emotions that you feel as a parent to have a child who has any disabilities whether physical or mental or anything like that, because you want the best for your child. You want them to have the easiest life possible. So that kind of brings me back to that post when I watch this episode, because Frank talks about their dad and how hard it was for him to put Jimmy into an institution. I cannot imagine as a parent putting my child away somewhere, because when you're a parent, you don't care if there's anything wrong with your kid. Like They're your kid. Obviously, not all parents because <laughs> not everybody's perfect. <laughs> but speaking from experience, me as a mom, if my kid, if anything was wrong, I would still be protective mama bear. You are not locking my kid up. So I can't imagine being in a society where that was something that you had to do. Now, it's still rough. It's still rough because you still get that everybody looks at your kid and knows that they have Down syndrome. And then people make judgments. Which is a horrible thing, and we have to step back from prejudices at first glance because you honestly don't know. You don't know who they are, what they've been through. You just look at them and have that judgment right there. We're getting better, though. We're getting better. We don't lock them up in institutions anymore. Nobody should be locked up in an institution for any disability that they have.
2: Well, the fact that Al tells Sam that Jimmy has the IQ of a 12-year-old, there's a lot online saying that that's just wrong.
3: It is 25 years ago. It is. Just their information, so.
2: Right, but IQ has nothing to do with age. A 12-year-old can be a genius. A 12-year-old could be an imbecile. You're right about that. So there's no correlation to IQ and age
3: think he was talking about maturity
2: i think so and it was just lost in the writing process yeah that part was wrong
3: well but even as far as maturity i know a lot of adults that are as mature as a 12 year old i have more toys than (laughs) most
2: men my age do yes you are in that group of the (laughs) maturity of 12 year olds yes and i'm proud of it yeah and And that's not a bad thing right Again, we're dealing with a show 25 years ago, and it's not like they were using the word retarded and confusion about the IQ versus maturity. Yeah. But they were really trying to do something important with this episode, and I think they did. And it might be silly to say, but it might be one of the reasons why people are aware of this problem, and it has gotten so much better in the last 25 years.
3: Oh, yeah. And I think that media exposure and shows that touch on things like this have helped a lot of people change their minds. At least I hope so. We don't really have shows like this anymore. The the morality play kind of show. At least I can't think of any that are on the air right now. But this was such a great show for that. We've touched on so many different social issues that compared to today, we've come so far. We still have so much further to go. But go Quantum Leap. They did this episode good.
2: See, you might like it, actually.
3: Well, I don't think it lived up to... My expectations because you were so excited for this episode, and I still don't really know why because it connects to more of a story later.
2: That might be my fault. I kept saying three episodes of Jimmy, two episodes of Jimmy, next episode Jimmy.
3: Yeah, and it was good. Yeah, but I can't wait to see the rest of it. I am I'm really looking forward to seeing where it goes because I know that you're really excited about the rest of it.
2: Well, I can say this without spoiling things too much. Brad Silverman is in four episodes of Quantum Leap. That's awesome. I can say next time you see Frank and Jimmy. It just makes you smile. And before interviewing John D'Aquino, I watched Jimmy and Deliver Us from Evil back to back just so I had it more fresh in my head. And if you have seen the series already, I recommend you watch those two episodes back to back. If not, wait. And wait
3: along with Heather. So I guess we'll watch those two back to back when I get there, huh? That's a good idea. Yeah. So we'll watch this one again later. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's always good to watch. But I think for me,
2: the most important part of this episode was being shown the perspective of how it feels to live when the whole society and everyone around you, even people who care for you, dismiss you and discount you and they expect failure from you. So What happens to Sam in this episode, everybody expects him to drop the dish. Everybody expects him to mess up, so he keeps messing up. He's a quantum physicist, and because everybody around him is treating him like he can't do anything, it affects him to where he's having troubles and he's clumsy, and it's just amazing to watch Sam go through that for me.
3: Now, we've talked about this before, part of the Leapy's personality coming through to Sam. Do you think that that has an effect on the clumsiness too?
2: Yes, it does. And I think this is one of the first episodes with definitive proof. And we'll see more examples as the show goes on. But this is one of those episodes.
3: Yeah, I know that when you know someone doesn't like you, you usually mess up more. (laughs) Like when you already feel defeated before you do something, it doesn't end up well. So I think that the stress of everybody giving him crap all the time (laughs) for real yeah
2: and besides that he knew how important it was for jimmy not to go back to the home
3: yeah so he had a lot of pressure
2: a lot of pressure and with all that added pressure things kept happening
3: and it's totally not his fault that he dropped the dish because connie bumped into him
2: exactly she
3: should have said i'm sorry are you okay yeah, that was, that was wrong. That made me mad every time I watched it.
2: I did not like Connie in this episode. I don't think you're supposed to, but I definitely didn't like her.
3: I like that she admitted she was wrong at the end, but the whole episode leading up to that last second, I didn't like her.
2: My favorite example of the whole Sam situation is moments before Connie knocks the plate out of his hands when he's actually holding onto the stack of plates really hard with two hands, trying not to drop them.
3: Yeah, he's trying really, really hard to not fail.
2: <laughs> and it made me feel for people that are differently abled, and they probably go through a lot of the same thing. They have to be extra careful just because everyone expects them to fail.
3: It's a horrible expectation to have of someone. And he had some
2: bad luck too. I mean, with the time card. Yeah. There's no reason why he couldn't work a time card. It was just, it just happened to jam up.
3: And everyone was just like, yep, you're retarded.
2: Yeah, very sad.
3: Yeah. And it sucks that everyone jumps to the conclusion that he messed up and left the spigot on because he was like, "No, I no, I didn't and they're like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, but you probably did.
2: Can we talk about blue for a minute? Of course he's probably the main antagonist, right. In this episode, he's not the only one like society is the main bad guy in this episode because everybody in the episode, even if they're not making fun of Jimmy, they're letting other people make fun of Jimmy. And today, if you saw someone making fun of someone with Down syndrome, you would say something and say, that's not cool.
3: Right. I agree.
2: So not only the people that were making fun of Jimmy, but people that were letting other people make fun of Jimmy were just bad and wrong.
3: Well, if you stand by and let someone be bullied or bully someone, you're just as guilty as the person who's bullying. That's what I've been taught.
2: Me personally, this episode had a big influence in my life. When I was in school, there was a special classroom for people with disabilities that needed extra help learning and getting an education and different things. And I was able to volunteer to help in that class. And I did that for several years during school because of this episode It inspired me to see what I could do. I'm sure I didn't teach them anything, but I was their friend. And just having people there to help them with the little things, I think it meant a lot to them. And it meant a lot to me that I was able to be there.
3: That's really awesome, especially that Quantum Leap inspired you to do something about it. That's a
2: big influence it had on me. And I'm sure it had an influence on other people that maybe had... Let's say worst case scenario was bullying somebody with Down syndrome and saw this episode and was like, dude, that's messed up.
3: I would hope so. I would hope that people have an open mind enough to realize when they're in the wrong. I'm still struggling with that today. Not bullying, but I mean, when you see something and realize (laughs) they're talking about you (laughs) and learning to fix your outlook on life. I'm really hoping that it did help a lot of people because being in Jimmy's perspective, like you had said before, helps a lot. I mean, Sam could have easily leaped into Frank and made the same difference. He still could have helped and kept him out of the institution. But the fact that he leaped into Jimmy, you did get to see it from Jimmy's point of view. That he was trying really hard and it was still not working out for him. And you got to see from his point of view how he was being treated. And I think that that makes the episode that much more powerful.
2: To agree with you, the great thing about this TV show quantum leap is that we are following along with dr sam beckett he's our window into this whole world and we're with sam beckett throughout the series and in this episode he leaps in the jimmy and we find out what it's like to be jimmy
3: yeah, i don't think you'd actually get that point of view anywhere else
2: so this is why it's one of my favorite episodes
3: The mirror scenes. I know we've talked about the mirror scenes a lot in our podcast. This one was really, really weird because Sam and Jimmy were in the same shot because you kept seeing Sam's shoulder in the mirror.
2: Yeah, that was definitely a mistake because you could see his shoulder in the mirror. And I think Scott Bakula saw that his shoulder was in the mirror because he was slowly moving to the
3: left. (laughs) Let me get out of that shot. But I think it was twice, maybe two, three times, but... I think the first shot of him in the mirror, the shoulder's not there, but then the shoulder kind of creeps in. <laughs> and then the next shot, the shoulder's really there. Well, the blocking for those
2: mirror scenes and the geometry is got to be very difficult because you have two people playing one character, a camera, and a mirror.
3: But why did Sam have to be in that shot?
2: Because you have to see the back of his head. Okay. You're seeing the back of Scott Bakula's head and the reflection of the other actor, Brad Silverman.
3: Yeah, but they should have made that happen a little bit or like just went in and did some cg wall editing i don't know they had no cg back then <laughs> i know they either they either
2: printed it or they did it again
3: oh the technology we have today
2: do you think it should be updated if they go through and put it on blu-ray or 4k i know you said earlier that no
3: no I, I, it's not it now we're just nitpicky because we are talking about the show and we just pay attention when you've seen it five times you notice things. I don't think it takes away from the episode at all. And it it does kind of date it, but that's not a bad thing. I, 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 like, I like Quantum Leap in all of its quirks and mirror errors.
2: Mirror errors. I think that's the first time I've ever heard that.
3: But it applies. It, it does totally apply. <laughs> Do you think it should be updated?
2: Why not? If the executive producer creator of the series is okay with it, then I would be okay with it. If he wants it left alone, then I'm okay with that also.
3: See, I think it's different than the graphics being redone, like fixing the mirror things. I think should be left alone. That should be left alone. If it was something like star Trek original series, when they, where they updated the planets and they updated all of the CG stuff. I think that that's okay to update, but fixing boo-boos and stuff. I think that just gets too complicated. So Connie says to Corey before he leaves, don't play at the wharf today. Come right home. Does he normally go play where his (laughs) dad works? I mean, but it was weird that they just kind of threw that in because he rode his bike there. So I guess that was showing that it's not that far away. You know, they don't put anything in by accident. So it was weird that she said that, I guess, to foreshadow that he was going to go later. (laughs) That seems like a really dangerous place to go play.
2: Yeah, with the forklifts and the cranes and the big crates that are similarly numbered.
3: <laughs> yeah, I I don't know. I just, it was weird that she told him not to go play there. I would, <laughs> don't ever go play <laughs> around the forklifts, please.
2: Yes, that's a hard hat area. Stay out of a hard hat area.
3: Yeah, right? Especially as a little kid.
2: I liked how Sam, as Jimmy, was joking with his brother, Frank, by calling Frank Sir... And uh, asking if he could pick his nose. He was making fun of how people were treating him.
3: Yeah, he had a good sense of humor about it. And then when they were sitting on the edge of the dock and Frank was trying to trick him and he just looked at him like, I know what you're doing. (laughs) I like their relationship. That was really good. And, And even Sam had a brotherly connection with Frank. And they're not brothers. So Sam just must have known the brotherly love kind of thing well
2: sam did have a brother right he died in vietnam
3: no i remember but i mean it's hard to have a brotherly connection with someone you're not related to there's something about your siblings i mean you you grow up with them you can make fun of them and know that they still love you and you know it's it's like a relationship that you have that you don't have with anyone else it was cool that sam and frank still had that connection even though sam really wasn't his brother
2: but they definitely did have that connection. Oh,
3: yeah. And I loved it in this episode. And
2: when Sam hugs Frank, you feel it.
3: Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that was that was good. And I'm assuming that that continues in the other episodes, too, that Frank and Jimmy have that brotherly bond, which is awesome.
2: And in this episode, we learn that Sam's never been on a job interview.
3: He's just that smart. People are like, no, we want you to come work for us.
2: Right. He had his choice of anywhere pretty much when he graduated, I'm sure.
3: Which is another cool aspect of this episode because Sam is completely out of his element. Because this is almost the opposite of Sam's life.
2: And the part where Mr. Samuels wasn't going to hire him because he said he's retarded. And Sam says, I can't change that, but I can do the work.
3: The thing I liked about the interview was the fact that he was yelling at him. And he's like, I, I'm <laughs> retarded. Not, no, he said, I'm slow. I'm not deaf.
2: I had a boss at one of my jobs... That not with someone differently abled, but someone who didn't speak English. Yeah. She would yell it louder in English like that would help. So there are people that, ah, I don't want to use the word dumb, but (laughs) (laughs) there are people that. They just don't understand how the world works. (laughs) Right. (laughs) If you don't understand English and you yell it louder in English. That's not going to help. Not at all. Water for elephants.
3: Well, I just thought that 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 was another kind of humor that. Sam brought to the character I don't know if if Jimmy is like that too but I liked that aspect of it that he had a humor about his disabilities and was like yeah but I'm not deaf you don't have to yell at me I can hear you
2: A lot of parts in this episode, it almost seemed like Jimmy was the smartest person in the room.
3: Yeah. Well, Sam is the smartest person in the room. But (laughs) between the two of them, it was a good combination of a character.
2: It was a combination because Sam was different in this episode than he's been in any other episode thus far. Right. With the humor and with the awkwardness.
3: Yeah. Well, this is going to sound weird. But can we talk about Sam's outfit or Jimmy's outfit in this episode? All
2: right. I like talking fashion.
3: (sighs) It's going to sound weird, but the beige jacket and the hat just seems like a stereotypical outfit for someone who has learning disabilities. Hmm. Did you see that? I didn't
2: like the hat. I'm not a hat person, but it confused me why he was wearing a hat, unless he thought that Jimmy always wore a hat, so he should wear Jimmy's hat.
3: Well, I'm assuming. But it's like, you know how stereotypically (laughs) older gentlemen wear their pants up at their belly button and they by their nipples (laughs) right? yes i mean it's just like they thought that he would wear a beige jacket and a a hat It, it was weird to me like i saw the outfit and was like why isn't he just wearing normal clothes it's like they put him in a special outfit at least that's how it came across to me do you not agree with that you know this whole
2: episode i didn't notice jimmy's fashion i did notice frank's fashion really Yes, for me, Frank's wardrobe was almost interchangeable from Douglas Quaid from Total Recall. So if you were cosplaying as either one of those, people would have to ask you which one you were, Frank LaMotta or Douglas Quaid.
3: Speaking of fashion, again, with Al, his outfit was kind of Swiss cheesy tie. Because of the color, I thought polka dots, but it's still kind of Swiss cheesy. Polka dots and Swiss cheese are kind of the same thing. But the cutout tie, whether it be a lightning bolt or Swiss cheesy it's kind of his new fad in the last few episodes. Yeah, he had a few of them. I'm not complaining. It's kind of a cool fashion statement he's got going on. He was in his normal crazy clothes, but not too much to take away from the episode.
2: It wasn't over the top because I think it was probably important. And I think somebody said, he's got a serious moment in this. We don't want him to look like a clown while he's having his moment.
3: Wear you respectable Swiss cheese tie. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, while they're talking outside the house in the beginning of the episode, Connie catches him talking now, which doesn't further his case with Connie. But every episode, come on, buddy, learn to speak somewhere where they're not going to see you talk.
2: There's always the shot in the episode where you see Sam talking to nobody.
3: We already know he's a hologram.
2: (laughs) What bothered me about this particular one is, I don't know if I'm a little slow, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if I'm a little slow, but we're seeing Sam from Connie's perspective in the kitchen. So she should be seeing Jimmy talking to nobody. Technically, yeah. Right. But we're seeing a shot of her seeing Sam, Sam. talk to nobody. So that makes no sense whatsoever.
3: I didn't even think about it that way. I was just like, really? By now? You should know to like go in the bathroom or well, I guess they would still hear him talking to himself. Where do you go to talk to your, your imaginary friend? You pick up a payphone.
2: Or a cell phone, depending on what decade you're in.
3: He has done that before.
2: What price, Gloria? Right. Has there been an episode where he hasn't been caught talking to thin air?
3: I don't think so. Okay,
2: so that's a standard thing maybe. And they go, okay, where are we going to put that shot in, in this episode?
3: Usually it just makes him seem crazy. And people are just like, yeah, well, it's just him being him. So in this episode, it, it just deepens his troubles with Connie in this episode. So that sucks, but. What are you going to do when you got to talk to your imaginary friend, a.k.a. hologram?
2: (laughs) You mentioned earlier about Sam and Corey's relationship in this episode. I thought it was really good. And I liked when he was telling him all about Star Wars.
3: Oh, that was a cute scene. It was. He was like, yeah, let's not read the gory comic book. Let's I'll I'll make up my own story. When
2: I saw that scene, I was kind of hoping to myself that it would be Star Trek. No, oh. <laughs> <laughs> that they would have done it a little differently. They maybe should have not given the last name of the family and then named him George.
3: <laughs> that would have been a little kiss with history kind of thing. Huh? Exactly. Yeah. And then at the end, they kind of go back to the Star Wars thing. And he's like, you have to come back so you can see Star Wars. <laughs> that
2: was a good part of the episode where Sam saves Corey with the mouth to mouth and then the CPR.
3: Yeah, because w- what other way was he going to redeem himself?
2: And he did in a big way. He saved their son's life. And you can never forget that.
3: Yeah, and it was quick thinking on his part to say they taught him in the institution. Because what other reason would they have to let Jimmy do CPR on their kid?
2: Right, if he just said, I got an idea, they wouldn't. But if he said he was taught how to do it.
3: Because she was hesitant. Connie was hesitant.
2: But at that point...
3: Well, that was Frank's point. Like, let him help. I mean, what are we going to do?
2: Right, the alternative is letting him die.
3: Yeah, and when your kid is in that kind of trouble... Whoever wants to help, sure. I know that Connie gives Jimmy a hard time, but she knows that Jimmy loves Corey. So I'm sure that that helped convince her to let him help.
2: And that even convinced Mr. Samuels of Jimmy's abilities.
3: And all the other co-workers. He won over everybody.
2: All at the same time. So it was really perfect. It was like it was written that way.
3: Weird. <laughs> and in that whole wharf scene, I-, I like that Blue gets what's coming to him. It sucks that he takes it out on Corey in the end, not purposely, but I also feel kind of bad for Blue. Sometimes bullies, actually most times bullies are bullies because they're insecure about their own disabilities, their own shortcomings, and that is definitely the case with Blue.
2: Blue, brilliantly played by Michael Madsen, who's been in so much television and movies, probably the most famous person in this episode He did a great job playing Blue, and again, the writing in this episode is really good because of the whole, he's not just a two-dimensional bully, he's a bully because he's afraid people are going to find out his secret, that he is dyslexic.
3: How long can you hide dyslexia, really?
2: That was one thing that kind of bothered me, that the first day Jimmy's on the job is the first day he mixed up two crates then that's Blue's job is to get the crate number 7516 and put it over there.
3: Well, he is a bully, so maybe he would blame it on somebody else before too.
2: But he probably would have made that mistake a few times.
3: Yeah. Maybe nobody ever pointed it out though. I don't know. But even, what did he drop out of school and has been working at the wharf ever since? I mean...
2: So he is a bad guy for the way he was treating Jimmy, but also you feel a little bit of sympathy for him because the reason he treats Jimmy like that is because he has his own learning disability.
3: I mean, I don't feel too bad for him because he's pretty evil, but too bad Sam wasn't there to help him.
2: (laughs) I can say I went back and forth a lot.
3: It's too bad that somebody wasn't there to help him out and help him learn in his own way.
2: That almost would have been a way for this episode to be just a little bit better if Jimmy helped finding some way to help Blue with his disability.
3: I think Blue was to a point where Jimmy could never help him because he had his own idea of who Jimmy was and what Jimmy represented.
2: A lot of times bullies, like you said, are bullies because of their own insecurities. I think I heard somewhere once, if I'm the monster in the dark, no one can hurt me. So if he's the bully, then he feels that people can't bully him.
3: Oh yeah, because who's going to bully the bully? Who's going to stand up to the bully and bully them? You're afraid of getting bullied yourself, so you don't stand up to the bully. And But Jimmy did. Okay, so Frank doesn't believe his brother that he'd shut off the spigot. Sam knows he did it. He shut off the spigot and Blue lied. Frank acts like he's saving the day, says he's going to quit. You know, I don't know how that helps, but he was upset and just acted in the moment. The things he says to Sam is so hurtful. But you say hurtful things when you're mad. And I know that he didn't really mean all those things. And then they come home and Connie is like, we tried. Didn't they say he's only been there for two weeks? So you tried? You tried for two weeks. Maybe three after he gets the job, right? Two and a half weeks. It's maybe been a few days since he's had the job, right? So you tried. You tried so hard in two weeks. Like that, that was my thing. I mean, I know that it can be frustrating for somebody who... I don't know, moves into your house and it affects your home life. Anybody. When your home life gets affected, I'm sure it's frustrating. But you tried for two weeks. Have some compassion, lady. You know, like, really?
2: Well, I think Connie was waiting for anything for Jimmy to slip up.
3: Yeah, she had no faith in him at all.
2: Just to say, aha, I told you.
3: That's horrible, though.
2: As far as Frank threatening to quit if they fire Jimmy, that's a good card to use if you want to keep jimmy working there
3: yeah if you're the star player if you're just another employee i mean right
2: but when mr samuels says i'm sorry i have to let jimmy go that's when you as frank when you have mouths to feed at home you go okay that sucks but you know i'm not gonna quit
3: yeah but then then you look like a coward but you have a job but i mean once you say it i don't think you could take it back i
2: think mr samuels would uh if he just talked to him
3: I think that it was awesome that Jimmy went and got the job back. So it all played. I mean, it was yeah. written. It was written like that. <laughs> Weird. But I, I, I don't know. I think that if he was way too angry to take back what he said. But I'm disappointed in Frank for not standing up to his wife and saying, give him another week. But she did have a point. I mean, what is he going to do? Go find another job and then you have to get a job. And she was upset because he not only lost his job, but ruined Frank's job, too. And she has no faith in him. So I I guess in her ignorant point of view...
2: Well, you said it. Connie is ignorant. And I don't think it's as much as she's a bad person, as much as the society she grew up in. And she has preconceptions of people that are differently abled.
3: Well, look at the neighbors. When Sam's trying to break up the fight, the neighbor kid's mom thinks that he's trying to hurt her son. Starts hitting Jimmy with a broom. And says he should be locked up. Keep him away from my son. Your son's the bully. I mean, <laughs>
2: <laughs> not when his mom's around though.
3: Well, yeah. I mean, everybody thinks their kids perfect, right. but ignorance is it is what it is, right?
2: So we're very glad that things are changing and times are getting better in this situation anyway.
3: In that whole scene with the going back to the institution, I liked that uh Sam says, "It was a simple bike chain. It doesn't take a rocket scientist." <laughs> <laughs> it might. It, it might take a rocket scientist. Right. At least Frank trusts him a little bit. Like Frank trusted him to help with the bike. Frank knows that he can do things and and Frank lets him play with Corey and Connie's the only one who doesn't trust them to play together. But Frank does trust him a little bit. He doesn't trust him enough to say he didn't mess up with the spigot, but he does trust him enough to help with the bike chain and play with Corey. And so he does know that he is capable of doing things and he tries to get him a job. And so he does believe in him. But it's hard, I guess, when society is against you.
2: Jimmy, or Sam, is very, turn the other cheek, don't let it bother you. But Frank has been dealing with this his whole life, and I'm sure it affects him emotionally every time someone says something bad about his brother that he loves.
3: Oh, yeah, because he's protective. You can tell that he's protective of his brother. And when someone says something bad about someone you love, you automatically go into protective mode. No matter if they're your little brother, big brother, your spouse, your best friend, you automatically go into, wait a second, you can't, you're not allowed to say that about said person.
2: Let's talk a little bit about the acting in this episode. Of course, Dean and Scott, amazing all the time, always.
3: They're just amazing, yeah.
2: John DiAquino. Great job. Right? How great was his character and how he portrayed it in this episode?
3: Yeah, and I mean, even Corey did great too with his little speeches that he made, about jimmy that was great and i'm sure connie's part was even hard to play you know not knowing what she knew even in the 80s 90s everybody did great in this episode
2: that's probably why it's one of my favorite episodes just everything for me came together in this episode the moral the lesson the acting and the writing by paul bellis just everything came together for me
3: i have to say as far as the acting there's a little funny part that al does he can't say dyslexic I'm sure Dean Stockwell can, but it was funny that he stumbled over it.
2: Oh, when the forklift was going through him. Yeah. That wasn't bad. Uh, Visual effects in this episode were pretty good.
3: Uh, They get better every episode.
2: Yeah, I can't think of one that was bad.
3: Yeah, and especially considering it was 25 years ago.
2: So after we've talked about the episode, is it still not one of your
3: favorites? It's not one of my favorites. I like it. Don't get me wrong. I like it. It's not one of my favorites, but I like it. Okay, I'll take that. I can't have every episode as my favorite. <laughs> that would defeat the purpose of favorites. Huh. <laughs> Are all the episodes your favorites? I think so. <laughs> I'm a big fan. Oh, yeah. Don't get me wrong. I like this episode. And after we talked about it more, it did move up a couple of notches on my list.
2: I think now would be a great time to go to our interviews.
3: I think that's a great idea. Well, now let's hear from John D'Aquino.
2: Day on the Quantum Leap podcast, we are very fortunate to have with us from one of my favorite episodes of Quantum Leap, John DiAquino. You know him as Frank LaMotta from Jimmy and Deliver Us from Evil. He was also in the final episode of Quantum Leap, and he wrote an episode of Quantum Leap, The Beast Within. Thank you for joining us so much.
0: Oh, well, my pleasure. And just uh, also, I think Tommy Thompson's name is on that episode. I I, I had a lot to do with that episode, but Tommy and I wrote it together. All right. Tommy Thompson. They're, they're one of their wonderful writers and uh, co-producer.
2: Could you start out by telling the listeners a little bit about your experience with Quantum Leap? It's
0: kind of magical. Um, I actually auditioned, I believe, three or four times to the show. I think three times. felt like I had very good auditions and didn't get the job. And then uh, there was a particular Friday where I was up for... Uh, a movie called Flight of the Intruder with Mel Gibson and Robert Downey Jr. And I was also, I don't know how seriously in contention, but I was being considered for uh, Godfather 3. And, um, you know, it's been something I've been really working for for a while. And on that given Friday, uh, I got a phone call saying, you know, no to both of those. <laughs> I was just really low and uh, thought, oh, God, just give me some place to put my thoughts, a place to... To work, something to work on. And on that Monday, an audition popped up for the episode of Jimmy. And my first response was, well, I've already gone in there and I've already given my best three times. I mean, do I really want to do this? Do I really want to have that possible rejection a fourth time? I'm so glad I decided to do it. And, you know, normally if they're calling you back, you know, all actors, egos aside, they like you. They're just trying to find the right fit. Well, this, This, I think, was a great fit for me. It really, that particular part felt like it had my heart. And so on that Monday, I believe, I auditioned, and I can't remember if it was a day later that I was told I, I got it. And it was just a magical ride. I can talk for a while on it. but I'll just say the one thing that I do remember is before the show even was completed, before the episode was wrapped, uh, I was getting phone calls, my agent was getting calls from NBC, from Universal, from Don Belisario himself, and everybody was requesting meetings. And I think sometimes, you know, all of us actors, we wait for that, that moment where it's the perfect marriage of yourself, your your DNA, and the right character. That was a really good fit for me.
2: It's one of my personal favorites out of uh, Quantum Leap. It's When you think about Quantum Leap, you think about that episode, Jimmy, and of course, the Deliver Us from Evil, which is almost a sequel to Jimmy in a way. And um, besides Scott and Dean, you're probably the actor that's on the show the most times.
0: I don't know about that. You know, Bradley Silverman, who played the mirror image, and he's Jimmy. Right. Um, he and I are still friendly. Um, we've been remained very close ironically and that's another gift from the show Um, but he always reminds me that he did one more episode than I did
2: oh yeah he was in shock theater (laughs) yeah (laughs) Uh, so you you still do uh, see him every once in a while keep in contact
0: we had breakfast we had a nice brunch breakfast together not long ago. He's doing very well. He's a pretty amazing fellow. He always has been. And uh love him very dearly. We've remained brothers from that show. I remember him literally. Uh, we were <laughs> first day on set. And uh, he said, where are you going now? And I said, I'm going to go back to my dressing room and change for the next scene. He said, I will go with you. <laughs> and I said, okay. And then... When he, it was time for him to change, now you will go with me.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: and that was pretty much it. We were uh, stuck together from that point forward, and we've really enjoyed a very good brotherhood from that show. It's been one of the great guests.
2: That really uh, is nice to hear, because you, you hope the people you see that uh, get along on screen are friendly in real life, and when they are, it makes you feel better as a fan, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. It'd be a fun interview
2: for you in the future. <laughs> okay. Uh, hopefully, that would be great if I can get in contact with him. So, really, when you were on two other Don Belisario shows before Quantum Leap, and that didn't help you get the roles the first time, you still had to audition.
0: You know, I'm trying to think of the shows that I was on. One would have been maybe Magnum before, is that what you're talking about? Right,
2: Magnum P.I. and Tequila and Benetti.
0: Was Tequila and Benetti? No, I think Tequila and Benetti was after, wasn't it? Uh, I, would have, I would have bet after. Okay. But, uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was after, but, um, well... Uh, Don was not associated, well, he, he was the creator, but he wasn't associated with Magnum when I did it. Ah. Uh. So, that was a different producer at the time. And then Tequila and ben, oh, you know what? Yeah, the, um, God, I'm getting all these confused now. Okay, the beast with there, I take out it. No, because I, um, I guess I did get the full credit on that one. It's been so long ago, because now I'm thinking that since you brought up Tequila and Benetti, I think I helped Tommy write that episode a little bit, so I'm not sure. I do see Tommy Thompson still. I'll have to ask him because I'm really confused at this point. but um, a great, great writer and a dear friend of mine, Tommy Thompson, and I actually drove out to California together years ago. and uh, and then, yeah, <laughs> and the first time he was ever on the set of quantum leap, I believe, was as my guest. And all on his own, without my doing anything, certainly. He became one of their top writer-producers. Pretty amazing.
2: What was the process like for you with The Beast Within? Uh, did you have to go in and pitch the story idea and then get approval? And then what was the writing process like for you?
0: It's kind of funny because uh, I had, <laughs> you know how Hollywood goes, I had pitched my one idea uh, that I had for the show to a producer that will go unnamed. And, um, and I, but I got busy on another series performing, acting in, in another show. And so I, I, I had no time to do anything else. But I was at the Hollywood Bowl to see one of Frank Sinatra's last concerts. And in front of me was a girl, an actress that I knew. And she said she was doing Quantum Leap. And because I knew everybody, I said, oh, which, which episode are you doing and who's directing? And she started telling me the episode that I pitched.
1: <laughs>
0: and that was, that was kind of tough. But, um, you know, Don makes sure he takes care of everybody. And um, I had this other opportunity to to write The Beast Within, which was a real a personal experience for me to write. I just felt very connected to, I was too young to fight in Vietnam, but I was very connected to the people that, that did have to go. And so I was really intrigued by a, a few stories that I had read about, and I thought it would make for good, uh, a good backdrop for, for Scott's character.
2: How different was the final episode from what you wrote, if any?
0: It was fairly different. Um, I think, yeah, the biggest thing that changed was, I have to really go back in my brain, but I don't believe I actually put Bigfoot or a monster in my episode. And that got added. That was, you know, through the staff that got added and whatever wisdom they came up with to add that character. But I can remember Scott being really unhappy about that and, um... and I, he thought I did it. He thought I was the one that put that in there. He felt like it wasn't true to the form. Um, I didn't tell him that it wasn't mine, but I remember him saying something to me about that. I mean, he, he was the protector of the the storylines at that point, so I understood why he would have an issue. Um, it's just that I I wasn't the one who added it. That was something. that was a decision that was made internally. But I agreed with Scott. I did. I wasn't. You know, it was more. It was meant to be more of the metaphor
2: watching it myself i feel like it was almost put in there for just for the preview to get people to watch the next episode
0: <laughs> i don't know but I, I respect i respected scott's opinion i don't know i felt the same way but i think anybody who writes you know they, they always want to have their own words up there or whatever but i also believe in i believe in the the greater consciousness of the room and for lots of reasons um, but I'm just really glad that I had the opportunity to do it. It was a joy. Uh, the director, I didn't know very well. I can't remember his name, and I, that was a disappointment to me. Not that he not that he was a disappointment, but I knew all the other regular directors, and I would have loved to have had that rapport upset, um, and I didn't really get to enjoy that because he didn't really know me, and you know, the, the life of the director can sometimes be the life of a journeyman, and so they're just trying to make sure they get the show in on time and all that, but um, yeah, so I kind of missed that. I was spoiled by knowing and loving some of the other directors on the show, the regulars.
2: What was it like to work with uh, Scott Bagula, Dean Stockwell? How did they treat you? And uh, did it change after being on the show so many times?
0: Yes, um with Dean Stockwell, who I believe is of Italian origin. I, I never really looked into it, but... Uh, but the only thing I can remember is he was, it was loop he was a little with me, kind of cool with me, kind of a cool character in general, but, uh, and cool in the, in, in the right sense of the word. But he was extremely warm and open with my mom and dad who came to visit us one time and so, uh, I guess he felt, uh, some sort of connection and maybe there was an Italian roots connection there, I don't know, but, um, I was delighted that he was, he was kind and warm to my parents. Um, Scott was very good to me. On set and a great leader, he taught me how to be a great leader. I learned a lot from him. so when it was when I had a show in the future if I, you know I always followed Scott's model, I'll never forget him. just he worked he worked with every he helped everybody on set. Uh, some, on some days I would see him you know pulling the cables across the electrical cables, whatever he, he could do. he was a great captain of that show, so I'm, I'm, I wish him well and he deserves all the, the good things that are happening for him. Got some good things happening lately, too.
2: Yeah, he's got, uh, what, NCIS New Orleans, I think, mm-hmm. coming up. Yeah. Yeah. Going back to Frank Lamada, was there a difference in your character, or if any, what was the difference between Jimmy and Deliver Us from Evil? Did you feel the character was different a couple years later?
0: Without having just watched the shows, I'm going to give a stab at that. I mean, obviously, there was the whole psychological pull behind the scenes of, um, and you know, the evil leaper. So no, I I think that, you know, I was trying to show maybe a realistic version of what could happen to people over the course of time. Uh the initial character really resonated with me. Just you know, he was in he was in a no win situation everywhere he went. Just trying to help raise his brother and it was just a super empathetic, sympathetic character that was It meant a lot to me, but it it also meant that character meant a lot to the fans of the show. And and so did Bradley. Bradley was, you know, he had all of their hearts. Scott was brilliant in it. And um, I think the thing that resonates for me is when I was a kid, there was a a boy who was retarded. I'll just use the word. And then he would come to our street and he would want to show, he was older than us, and he would want to show us his monster magazines because that was the cool thing. And when he would appear on our dead end street, the first mother who saw him on the street would shout and scream. And all the mothers would yell for all of us to come in. Get in the house. Get in the house. Because they were afraid it was contagious.
2: It seems kind of silly nowadays.
0: Silly and sad and just frightening. It's frighteningly sad. So I really had that memory with me the whole way through that show. And, um, the show took place in the early sixties. So it was something that was really close to me and pain, It was a painful memory for me to think about it, especially now. Um, but yeah, so Frank LaMotta really resonated with me and he was not getting the support of his wife at home. He was mom and dad had passed on. He's got this brother. He's trying to get him work. He's trying to keep his own job and then he fails at that. So he had a lot going against him. It's a great character to play. And Jimmy Whitmore Jr. directed it. Um, we had a great cast, and everybody did their job, so everybody looked good in it. He did Michael Madsen, ultimately.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: And then but the next one, I remember—I I can't remember the ladies' names offhand. I'll say Renee uh, was one of them, but uh, really great actresses. I can't remember the name of the, the lady that played the evil leaper, and then she had her Dean Stockwell version, uh, the English actress. And they were a lot of fun, um, and yet, you know, put scott's character in a real bind again and um anyway so i don't know if i can make a proper comparison without you having just watched the final episode was the trip
2: were you honored to be invited to do that in in the last episode like did yeah, you very
0: much so very much so and to be invited in this if you're part of the family at that point and uh, it was so nice to do it with bradley and yeah it was such a uh, yeah, Don, Don's going to push the boundaries in uh, a yeah, wonderful psychological drama. And yeah, it was different than what I expected, for sure. Very different. The Sopranos needed one like that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you have been in so many great television series that everybody has seen. You made the rounds in the 90s in the sci-fi and the shows that I watched anyway, so you're very recognizable to me. Like Sliders, that was a good part you did where you played the bad guy in virtual slide. Uh, I'm sure our listeners would uh, not be happy with me if I didn't ask you about Sequest DSV.
0: <laughs> um, yes, that was amazing. Tommy Thompson, I mentioned earlier, um, was offered the helm of running that show. And I, there was a lot of politics going on behind the scenes uh, between Tommy and uh, so it's too much information to give out. But um, Tommy wanted to put a character on the show that had, sense of humor and in particular his sense of humor which is phenomenal uh, and he knew that I could deliver that but I literally I went to him and said Tommy don't do this because you know, make sure you get in there get comfortable and I, I truly did not want him thinking about me I wanted him to have a, a great ride because Steven Spielberg handpicked picked him for the for the journey you know and it was quite an honor um, but he was convinced that the show needed some levity And so he wanted to bring me in as sort of an instant pulver character. That began one of the the hardest, (laughs) most challenging audition processes I ever went through because there was a camp of people who wanted anybody but John DiAquino for that role because I was associated with Tommy. And some of those people that were in that camp were higher up, I was actually shooting on the set of Quantum Leap during this process. So I was in one of those episodes. I can't remember if it was the final one. must have been the final one And And um, So I was on the Universal lot anyway. And it got so contentious that um, about three days before the audition, NBC calls up my agents and said, please make sure John knows he'll have some friends in the room. That's how ugly it got. <laughs> Never heard that one before. And... Uh, and then when I walked into the room, there was a, it was a I, knew, I knew at least five of the people that didn't want me, and there was a handful, I guess it did. And I was sitting there in, in the lobby and watching everybody walk into the room. There was about seventeen people in that room that day. And I remember thinking, wow, if I don't let go of this anger, um, you know, this this feeling of being hurt by what people have said, people don't even know me. I don't have a chance of making anybody smile in that room. So I literally spent that time in the lobby just um, kind of almost in a prayer like forgiving people, forgiving those people and just making peace with them before walking in. And I was able to walk in lightly and I looked people in the eye and I called them by their first names to make sure that they understood that I was a human being. And uh, I was very relaxed. I had a great time in the room and it ultimately came my way. And I found out while on set. I remember telling Scott about it. as a matter of fact. Yeah.
2: I'm glad you got that. That show and uh, I want to say Star Trek Next Generation were the two shows back then I couldn't miss.
0: Oh, that's really nice of you to say.
2: What character do you get recognized for the most? Because you've done so many things.
0: Well, ironically, well, a lot of people from the Seinfeld episode, all the aficionados of Seinfeld, that'll happen. My character's name is Todd Gack, and some people will call me Gack. Hmm. <laughs> the mailman, yeah, substitute mailman one day, he goes, You're Gack you're Jack, man i'm like yes yes and uh and then a lot of people from quantum leap but quite frankly it's mostly uh the kids and they all know me as the president of the united states from cory in the house which is a disney show which was the spinoff of that's so raven and rondell sheridan the comedian who actor director great guy um he played the father of Raven on That's So Raven, and he was also on this program. And he said to me, get ready, your life's going to change. And I was actually teaching, I have an acting school, and I was teaching 18 and above up until that time. And afterward, everything changed. I started getting invited to teach a lot of kids. I first, I remember visiting some schools, I I think I was in the Midwest, and the show had been on for a little while. And this group of kids came up to me and said, can we hug you? And I'm like, uh yeah, sure. <laughs> you know? So I'd never, uh, I never anticipated that I would be embraced by children in that way, and it was really fantastic. And I was, so uh, there's been a part of me that wanted to do to be a little league coach, to be a, a life coach for kids, but I did, couldn't understand how it was going to, to really happen outside of my own kids. And uh, all of a sudden, in the last six or seven years, the school has been really blossomed, and we have a, a really good school for young actors in L.A. We go from ages 6 to 26 basically. Um, We make movies. We literally bring in professional crews. We make original movies. We give a lot of kids uh, opportunity to learn. And we have a a large number of success stories. We have some kids that have their own shows. We just had, um, well... I can go on about that, but I'm not sure if I want to talk about some kids specifically, but we have kids that are on shows. One one or two have movie careers. One is about to have a major movie career. Um, and so, you know, eventually you're going to have your successes, I guess, regardless, but it, it feels good. And then it also feels good for those kids that will never be professional actors, but love it, um, and just... They really just want to learn the craft, and we try and introduce them to all aspects of the industry because I don't want them to turn out victims to and just being actors. I want them to you know, develop as writers, producers. I mean, I'll cheer the loudest when one of my kids becomes a studio executive. I'm going to really get a kick in on that one. But already, some of our students are having lunches together at the commissary, and that's pretty amazing.
2: How can people find out more about that?
0: Uh, I have a website, johndiaclino.net. So, you know, I will say that it, we, we are a school for professionally minded kids. And we have kids coming in from around the world now, actually. But, um, we're fun. We're, but we're but not easy. So, you know, we try and make sure that everybody understands that the goal is primetime or film. And so we're going, we really try and have a, have a very ambitious, curriculum to, it, it resembles the professional world of show business so in addition to learning how to become an actor you really and this is someplace where oh boy, i stepped in it a lot of times you have to learn set etiquette set protocol i will you know i can't go into it but there was there was about four incidents in my career where um i'll say very well established actors try to hurt my career and i really feel that these were middle-aged guys who were threatened on some level. It happens to ladies all the time. But I can remember it happening to me clearly and saying to myself, I will never be that person in my middle ages. And if anything, I will, I will reach out. I will do what I can because it's not easy. And there's no manual for this. And we spend a lot of time trying to create some sort of manual for how to be what's expected, be a guest on set. Et cetera, et
2: cetera. I was reading your biography, and I noticed it had said that one of your teachers uh early on was Charles Nelson Riley. yeah, could you tell me uh more about your uh relationship with Charles Nelson Riley and how amazing that must have been
0: <laughs> uh that was a gift from heaven that's that's a very special man, and anybody who studied with him feels the same way I do, and we're all very blessed. A lot of us became teachers because of Charles because he taught us initially, if you love the craft, the craft will love you. Better. And and we all did. We never even asked about when do we get a job. We just devoted everything to our classes, to our work. And then eventually the work would find us because we became talented. We all developed our skill sets. There's been a lot of people that became actors, writers, producers, directors. As a matter of fact, John Hawks. And he he has a great career, but he was the guy in the back. He that's the class. He hardly, you know, came in periodically, and he would always do something a little bit tweaked, a little bit different. And uh, I think it probably took him the longest, but he's gone really far subsequent to that. Um, Charles was the most giving person you've ever met. He was he rooted for the underdog. We could be invited to a meal with luminaries, not only stars but luminaries from any any part of the world. And we'd be invited to these dinners because he would always want to incorporate us and he would celebrate you if he just met you he would celebrate you and at a table at the finest restaurant in beverly hills he would bring the waiter over and make sure that everybody at the table knew who this waiter was or who the who the boss boy was or who the waitress was tell me about yourself you know and he would celebrate that person and make sure everybody understood that this person had value this person was special and important as well it was amazing um and a gifted teacher. Class was like church. That's all I can say. You know, he would disarm you with, he was the funniest human I'd ever met and I, I got to hang out with some great ones and the great comedians wanted to hang out with him. He would make them laugh and he would disarm you with his humor and then he would just level you with his passion. And so we learned both. We learned both.
2: Do you have any uh, little funny stories or anything that happened on the set of your time on Quantum Leap that you could tell the listeners? Mm, let me see here.
0: <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, okay, there is there's a few funny stories. Well, it, it actually didn't happen on the set. It happened as a result of Quantum Leap. I was proposed to um, by somebody on a bluff in England. Who, <laughs> so, Yeah, I really liked my character. Um, yeah. So, and it was uh, I had gone to a quantum leap event. I won't say where. And uh, like I said, England. And, and I ended up getting proposed to. And that was that was nice. It was nice. I didn't accept, but it was nice. <laughs> and uh, yeah. So thank you, Quantum Leap.
2: <laughs> Sounds flattering. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much.
0: Thank you. Thank
2: you. So much. Uh, thank you so much. Honor talking to you. Be well.
0: Be yeah. well. Thank you.
3: That was a great interview. He seems like a great guy. Very
2: nice guy, uh, took the time to talk with us, and he was very helpful in uh, explaining everything about his experience and his character.
3: I have to say, Quantum Leap must be an awesome show, if you remember details like that from 25 years ago. I can't remember last week. I am 25, so I don't, I don't remember 25 years ago <laughs> either. But um, it, it's great that we are getting all these awesome interviews with all these details of what it was like to be on the show.
2: And it's cool that he actually got to write an episode, too.
3: Yeah, I, I saw some snippets of that episode.
2: Not too much, I hope.
3: No, no. Well, you were watching it. <laughs> I was like, don't look. <laughs> I don't think, well, they're, they're all pretty much in their own episode. Each episode is kind of their own episode.
2: And thanks to Mr. D'Aquino, he got us in touch with Brad Silverman.
3: It's pretty cool that they're still in touch. Yeah. So next, we'll go to your interview with Brad.
2: Hello. Hello, Mr. Silverman. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us. You're welcome. Okay. Uh, we ha- just have a few questions for you. Um, first one is, can you tell us a little bit about your experience filming Quantum Leap?
4: My experience working with Quantum Leap was very exciting. And it made me feel really good to know that people like Scott Bagel and Dean Stockwell were so wonderful to work with and get acquainted with. They taught me a lot about acting.
2: Out of your TV and film roles, which did you enjoy playing the most and why?
4: I loved all the TV and film roles I had, but my favorite movie I was in was I Am Sam. This movie sent out a message to the world that people with developmental disabilities can accomplish many things in life if given the chance.
2: Also, what was it like working with Scott Bakula and Dean Stockwell?
4: Working with Scott Bakula and Dean Stockwell was different because it went back in time, and the experience felt very different to me. Both of them were two different people playing different roles.
2: Were the reflection scenes with Scott difficult to set up?
4: It was difficult to set up because there were different kinds of reflections in the background, so that way we could see the interaction between two different people in the mirror.
2: What was your favorite episode of Quantum Leap that you appeared in and why?
4: I really enjoyed working on the mirror image scene because I was able to see a different reflection of myself, which was really Scott.
2: Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you.
3: So that was another great interview. How was that talking to Brad? It was
2: amazing because he's such a big part of my childhood being a character that reoccurs in Quantum Leap and like I said earlier, had such a big impact on my life and it was just amazing to be able to talk with him on the phone.
3: That's awesome. You had a great honor to talk to both of these guys during this episode. Everybody associated
2: with Quantum Leap is so nice.
3: And they talk about how everybody else is so nice. What a great show to
2: work for, right? I think that might be one of the reasons why this show is so important to everybody because besides the writing and everything, the acting, you can tell that the people are generally good people trying to do a good job and you feel that happiness that they have while working on the project comes through.
3: I don't think you can work on a show for five seasons or even guest appear on a show where the moral of the show is making right what once went wrong if the people working for the show aren't good people. I mean, you have to be good people to make a show about good people, right?
2: Right. If it was a casting crew of jerks, they wouldn't care about making important television that taught everybody a moral lesson.
3: I'm glad to know that the people we're talking about in real life are good people. Makes me feel better. Well, I've said it before. People say, don't
2: meet your heroes. But everybody I've talked with and had conversations with, and they're longer than are on the air, of course. You know, we talk... And they just seem like generally nice people. Like I just talked to Jane Sibbett and she is just an amazingly nice person.
3: I know her from It Takes Two and she <laughs> she is not the favorite of that movie. She is kind of evil. And I'm glad to know that she is an awesome person. I've heard the interview and she seems like such a nice person. And I'm so glad because being Clarice in It Takes Two, she does not seem like a nice person. But that just means her acting is that much better.
2: Uh, everybody I've met and talked to is just so great so far. y'all got
5: on this boat for different reasons, but y'all come the same place. I'm Ron Glass, and
0: if you're not listening to the signal, you could be headed to a special hell. Hi, this is Adam Baldwin. and you're listening to the Goram signal. We're just happy to be doing good works. Hi, this is Tina Torres, and you're listening to the Big Damned podcast. Hi, this is Marina and This is the
5: signal.
3: What, you didn't see that coming?
5: I want to make some noise. I want to make a joyful
4: noise. I want to make too much noise. Make
5: it go further. What? Make the signal go
4: further. As Malcolm Reynolds would say, I am to misbehave.
5: We are a podcast all about Firefly and Serenity.
3: On our shows, you will find features and news,
5: reviews and articles, interviews, and anything else we can think of relating to the verse of Firefly and Serenity.
3: We're continuing to explore the verse, and we want you to join us.
5: Just go to www.serenityfirefly.com. Shiny. Let's be bad guys. The Signal. We
2: We aim aim to
3: misbehave.
2: misbehave. We have some feedback. We have a lot of feedback. We have some email. Oh, yeah? We have a couple emails from Jill. The first one starts off by saying, Hi, guys. I've been marathoning your podcast trying to catch up with you. I only just discovered you exist. I have a question which has been puzzling me ever since you talked about how the test was won. How did Sam know the song Peggy Sue? It didn't exist until Buddy Holly wrote it, and Buddy Holly didn't write it until Sam told him the words. So before Sam told him the words, the song didn't exist. So Sam couldn't have heard it in the future, at least not until after he had changed history for the better. It's a paradox. The only explanation I could come up with is that in the original timeline... Peggy Sue was written and recorded by some other artist, say Bruce Springsteen, perhaps inspired by Peggy Suey, a failed song from an unknown artist lost in time, in which case both Al and Sam would know the song. His history changed would only then mean that Buddy Holly wrote it instead of Bruce Springsteen and a few years earlier. That's a pretty dumb hypothesis, but it's the best one I could come up with. Do you have any other ideas? Cheers, Jill. (laughs) you have like this I don't understand paradoxes face I am not a
3: pro in paradoxes
2: I think she has a valid point and I think that that's very likely how it happened there's the other theory in time travel that everything that happened happened but I don't think that applies to quantum leap because the whole reason Sam is there is to change the past put right what once went wrong
3: well if Sam has all the knowledge in well in his Swiss cheese brain Between him and Al, they know what's happened all the way up into the future. So he could have influenced Buddy Holly, but see if he wasn't there the first time. It could have just taken him longer to write it, but Sam just helped him along with the process.
2: Oh, I like that. I never even thought of that. So eventually he would turn Piggy Suey into Peggy Sue by himself. Right. This way, Sam's just giving him a nudge.
3: That's my opinion.
2: I like it. I never would have thought of that. I would have just, my brain would have started churning and churning and smoking.
3: I am not a pro on the science fiction reasoning. So I could be totally off here. but No, it's very valid.
2: I have an affinity for time travel. Things like that interest me, and I like to think about them for long periods of time.
3: Jill wrote us another
2: email, which is great because she's following along with the podcast and emailing us.
3: We love to get emails.
2: This one says, Hi guys, in your Kamikaze Kid episode, you wondered what the decade from 2000 to 2009 was called. Heather said that she had asked everyone and nobody knew. I must assume that she had only asked people in the USA. Anyone in the UK would have known the answer. Here in the UK, the decade is universally referred to as the noughties. Sometimes misspelled the noughties, as in naughty.
3: As in hey, hey, hey.
2: (laughs) You don't have the word not meaning zero in American English. So I can see that wouldn't work so well on your side of the pond. Maybe this would be a good time to import a British word into your vocabulary. Google the noughties and it turns up loads of links. I believe the current decade is being referred to as the teens. Cheers,
3: Jill. I feel so much smarter after that. Thank you, Jill, because I really had no idea. And I didn't even know not was a word for zero. I had heard of that before,
2: but we don't use that normally in American English. But it makes a whole lot of sense. And I've added that to my vocabulary now. And I think you actually started asking people About that, after I started asking you that, because I've asked so many people that in my life, and no one has given me an answer. So Jill is the smartest person in the room right now.
3: Yeah, kudos to you.
2: And we have a series of three emails from someone who just found our podcast.
3: His name is Father Beast. Yay, we're so excited for new listeners, especially ones who send us emails, because we like to hear how we're doing. Hello, this is Father Beast. I heard a promo for your podcast on some other one, probably tuning into sci-fi television. And came over to check it out the first episode i got was the one for what price gloria and i knew this was a podcast for me when i found myself grinning from ear to ear about halfway through i myself started watching quantum leaps sometime in season two because my wife to be highly recommended it and we continued even after we got married and watched it all the way through to the end then we also watched it on reruns on the sci-fi channel around a decade later and i finally got to see some of the earlier episodes which i had never seen I remember being particularly floored by Honeymoon Express, but I don't own the DVDs, so perhaps I'm not the biggest of fans. One of the things about Quantum Leap is that it is a really good and amazing show to watch, but I tend to forget how good it is when I'm not watching it. I'm discovering this now as I'm starting to re-watch the shows along with you guys, and my wife isn't all that interested and would rather watch the latest episode of Arrow or Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. or something. But I convince her by telling her I'll sit with her and rub her feet if we watch an episode of Quantum Leap, and she enjoys it every time. I'm also listening to your back catalog of podcasts, as time permits, and I am up to the episode covering Double Identity. You guys are lots of fun to listen to, but I was thrown a bit for a loop when during the episode covering Thou Shalt Not, you guys went into some depth over the feelings for your children, and I started to realize you were talking about the same child. Albie calls her Serenity, while Heather refers to her as Rennie. That made me go back to your website and read some and discover that you two are a married couple. Imagine my astonishment as I thought you were just friends. Also, I don't recall where you said this, Albie, but I have to disagree with you on the idea that our memories are what make us what we are. Sam, on arriving in the past, had a lot of memory loss, but still was who he was. And anyone who has had more than one child has realized that children come preloaded with personality traits. Dr. Beckett is sort of the perfect candidate for a time-traveling adventurer because of his preparation. He is athletic, highly intelligent, highly educated, and he is kind and compassionate. You may say he was custom-designed to be a quantum leaper. This email has bounced around a lot, and I will try to keep my future emails a little more focused, maybe even start sending you one about each episode as it comes. We shall see. Thank you, and keep on podcasting. This trip through Quantum Leap promises to be good, and I'm glad I got aboard close to the start. Father Beast.
2: Thank you so much, Father Beast. Wow, Um. where do we start? Yes, I guess the cat's out of the bag. Heather and I are married. Yes. And both our children we talk about is the same child.
3: <laughs> both of our children. She sometimes, she sometimes has multiple personalities. <laughs>
2: she's, she's a great girl. Um, I Yeah, we don't mention it a lot because we don't want to be like, this is the married show. Yeah. But uh, we are best friends. Yeah. And uh, that's how I got Heather to watch Quantum Leap to begin with myself.
3: <laughs> <laughs> we should continue that tradition. <laughs> Good idea, Father Beast.
2: I, I don't know. You're a little committed now. <laughs> you have to watch him anyway.
3: That's a trick. I would agree with him to where he says
2: that you don't remember how good Quantum Leap is when you're not watching it. Now that we've started watching it for the podcast again, I want to marathon the whole thing. I just want to go one episode
3: after another. I can't, but I want to. Yeah, that would affect the show. On the topic of our
2: memories making us what or who we are, uh, that's just an opinion. I'm not an expert. That's just my feeling on the situation. Just because I know my reactions to things are based on my previous experiences. But maybe I am predisposed genetically to be more curious than other people or more analytical or just ask why more. And that might influence my personality.
3: See, I think you're both right, because I think that memories and what has happened to us in the past does shape who we become. But we also are who we are to start with, too.
2: But even Dr. Sam Beckett, without his memories, not knowing where he is, who he is, what's going on, he's still a genuinely nice person.
3: Yeah, he still knows right and wrong. Right, so, and thank you for that. This is our second email from Father Beast. Hi, Father Beast here. As I go through your episodes, it constantly irritates me every time you say that Sam is in someone else's body. I keep screaming at my MP3 player that he isn't in someone else's body. You guys seem to have a different opinion, so I decided to send you an outline of my reasons why I believe that Sam Beckett is physically jumping around in time. That means that Sam Beckett went into the Project Accelerator and vanished. Then Tom Stratton appeared in the waiting room, looking like Sam Beckett, even though he was someone else. This, I believe, despite the lies that were told in that Quantum Leap origin novel. 1. The Physical Sam is a person, in pretty good physical condition, even better after his period of training in the right hand of God. And this is reflected in his ability wherever he goes. He may move differently based upon whoever's life he is in, but I choose to believe that this is a result of emotional entangling, which is a whole other issue. When it comes down to it, Sam has his own physical abilities. Even if he appears as an overweight person, he still can sprint like Sam can. contrary in the right hand of God, Sam was not in as good a physical condition as a professional boxer, and so that was reflected also. His trainer blew it off as him not having done a straight fight in so long, but this was the real reason. Additionally, there are things he does in future episodes which would be physically impossible for the person he is appearing as to do, not to spoil anything for Heather. Lastly, I seem to recall occasions where someone would hold his hand and momentarily remark that it felt rougher than they remember. Then they would disregard the impression for some reason or other. I may be imagining this part. Number two, what is illusion? What is true? It has been established that little children and animals see Dr. Beckett as he really is, and incidentally also see Al. It just makes more sense to me that most people would be seeing the illusion, while little children and animals see what is really there. To say that he inhabits other people's bodies is to say that most people see what is really there while little children and animals see the illusion. That doesn't make sense to me. The Christmas Carol episode where the rich guy could see Al was rather a special case which further explains the phenomenon that strongly suggests that Al, or the image of Al, is not a figment of Sam's imagination, but is an actual projection existing in the past, but only visible and audible to those of a certain neurological makeup. And, by loophole, little children and animals… I cannot think of any explanation that has Sam inhabiting someone else's physical body, with Al existing only in his mind, but has anyone else at all able to see his hallucination? 3. The Spiritual Aspect Early on in the series, my wife and I suggested to someone at church that they watch Quantum Leap, you know, since he goes about doing good things. I was a bit shocked at their answer, that they don't allow their kids to watch a show where someone's spirit is inhabiting other people's bodies. I was left spluttering, but, 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 that's not what's happening. Anyway... I have a hardline belief that it is impossible for one person's spirit to inhabit another person's body. It just doesn't work. That is a personal belief and may have nothing to do with anything else, but there it is. I don't even like fantasy novels that take this as a premise. It is a hard enough line that if someone managed to convince me that Sam was actually inhabiting other people's bodies, a situation I consider unlikely, given the evidence, then I couldn't enjoy the show anymore. Cons. To prevent the other side, which only has one argument in favor that I can think of, that is, why do his clothes fit? To make an analogy from Firefly, one might ask where they get artificial gravity, which is an even bigger impossibility than -than faster-than-light travel, which most browncoats disavow. The truth is that the scenes aboard Serenity are filmed in a gravity environment, and so we just accept it. Similarly, Scott Bakula is the one wearing the clothes, so we just accept it. But that's cheap. From within the show, I choose to suppose that a space-warping effect causing his clothes to fit. I admit it's kind of lame, but the show didn't give me much to work with on this point. Well, that's my feelings on the matter. I hope I have caused some of you to think a little bit. I will still yell every time one of you says he's in another body. And I hope you can hear the ghost of my yell as you record. Father Beast. I would like to start by saying this is my first time watching and I didn't know the rules. So I'm sorry that I made you yell because I didn't know. I think Hayden is the one who kind of educated us into this whole thing, but they don't really tell you how it works. And... I was totally confused in the beginning. I had no idea what the rules were, who could see what, and up until What price Gloria, I thought Al was seeing Sam. I didn't know that Al was seeing the P. so I'm still confused, but I'm going with the fact that it is in fact Sam and everybody just sees the other person. I'm in total agreement with that, but in the beginning, I had no idea.
2: It is confusing, and even though I've seen the whole series before, I had no recollection of the actual, I guess, science behind what's going on.
3: Well, they don't spell it out for you.
2: I think there's a reason for that. I don't think they really knew right away how it worked. I think they were just writing as they
3: went. That makes sense. Because things change and the rules that they have or the rules that I thought they had change. But I I know I had a lot of questions in the beginning as to how it worked because I wanted to know (laughs) and I'm glad that Hayden... And Father Beast have kind of explained it to me because I was so confused in the beginning. But I, I do now accept it as, you know, it is Sam physically. But I thought in the beginning that Sam's body was back at headquarters or, you know, in the accelerator.
2: Because they saw him there. Right. But I guess little children and animals would see the Leapy.
3: Well, but little children and animals see Sam instead. They see Sam
2: in the past, but in the waiting room they would see... The oh Leapy. My, yeah.
3: Yeah. It's confusing. I'm confused.
2: This is confusing. And just because we love the show and we're doing the podcast does not make us experts yet. I'm sure by the time we get finished with the podcast, we're going to know everything. (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) But that's with the help of Hayden, Father Beast, and future people that are going to help us along the way. And I really appreciate them letting us know what's up.
3: Yeah. And as I continue on with the series, see, the people that are listening along with us usually have seen the series. So you guys know more than I do.
2: I'd say 98% of people.
3: Yeah. I don't think a lot of people are starting out. Some people do, which is awesome. <laughs> I hope so. Yes. Yeah. But I mean, I, I have not seen any further. I, we literally watch the episode, do the podcast, watch the next episode, do the podcast. We watched that episode about five times in about a week, two weeks. And... We do that podcast. So when we're recording, I have not seen the next episode. Like I have only seen up to episode eight of season two at this point right now. So at probably tomorrow, I will watch the next episode. So if I seem uneducated, I apologize. But I really am new at all this quantum leap sciencey stuff.
2: In interest of full disclosure, I do watch one episode ahead of Heather just because for scouting for interviews.
3: Well, you're not being spoiled, though. You know the ending. So most of them.
2: Well, but I mean the complete ending. <laughs> I love that he made a Firefly reference.
3: Yeah. Obviously, we're Firefly fans here.
2: Brown coats all the way. Oh, yeah. Some things you just got to accept.
3: Well, I think sometimes our brains don't question, like he said, on Serenity. You don't question that it's fake. Gra- I mean, at least I didn't, which I'm not that technical. So, of course, I wouldn't. <laughs> but um, I'm your basic TV watcher. And I didn't question the gravity on their ship. I guess I should have, but I...
2: It's a lot cheaper than hanging people from wires the whole show.
3: Yeah, and but I mean... I, a lot easier but, on the actors. But I didn't even think about it until he said that. As much as I would love to be, I just haven't gotten that far into all the technical aspects of Firefly.
2: So how should we refer to Sam leaping back? Just Sam being there?
3: Well, I think now when we refer to it, I think we mean in theory, like Sam being in that person's body. If we refer to it now, we don't mean technically in that person's body. I think now we just refer to him as Sam or right. the Leapy and Leaper. And
2: What I mean when I say it now is Sam is in that person's life and being seen as that person.
3: Right. So technically, we agree with you. And if we say it wrong... We're sorry, but we're totally on the same page. And I was hearing something. So now I know
2: what that was. It was him yelling at the MP3 player.
3: Aha. But now we know.
2: I thought I was going crazy, but I'm glad I'm not.
3: And in his third email, Father Beast here. Regarding the episode Jimmy, you guys said you found the thou shalt not episode hard to handle because it dealt with a sensitive subject. I have the same problem with Jimmy. Jimmy. Losing my ability to think is one of my personal nightmares, and in the way life has of making you face your fears, one that actually happened. A bicycle accident in 1987 where I ground my head against the street seemed to result in losing a lot of my ability to think over the next few months. I never measured it, but I suspect my IQ dropped 20-30 to points. It started coming back around a year after the accident, but I don't think I was fully recovered until around 1994. My wife and I got married in 1989, and she says she watched me get smarter over the next few years was kind of a reverse of the book Flowers for Algernon. Anyway, Jimmy, it's a good episode, if kind of standard, precisely because of the things which make almost every episode a good one. There were lots of people trying their best and unthinking people getting in the way, and true villainy almost non-existent. Even Blue, the bad guy at the plant, I kind of feel bad for because of his handicap, which was a nice reveal by the way. That doesn't mean that the unthinking stuff people do doesn't damage people and their lives. This episode is a standard example of all the cool things Quantum Leap is almost all of the time. I'm going to take this opportunity to answer a couple of other things from previous episodes. Favorite episode. I really like all of the ones which deal directly in some way with Sam or Al, with The Leap Back being my favorite of that kind. If I accept that category, then I think my favorite was the one stuck on a desert island with Brooke Shields. I don't recall the title offhand. Least favorite episode. There's only one stinker. And that is dreams. Although Lee Harvey Oswald and the wrong stuff weren't that good. During the Good Morning Peoria episode, you played a lot of the music from the Quantum Leap Music album. I bought the cassette tape of that for my wife for Christmas in 1993, and she had no idea it even existed. She was so shocked, she actually wet herself a little. She was also quite pregnant with our daughter Manali at the time. But we were already very familiar with the music of Quantum Leap since I had made a cassette tape recording from our VHS tapes of the show of many of the songs that had been done in the show. The commercial album was actually a bit of a disappointment, since we generally preferred the version done on the show to the beefed-up studio versions on the album. My wife is a particular fan of Fate's Wide Wheel. The first song you played from that album, that episode, was Somewhere in the Night, and I started getting all weepy, even though I was driving on the freeway at the time. That song has a special place in my life, since my older son requested it as a bedtime lullaby for years, between when he was five and around nine. For us, it is kind of a love song between father and son. Anyway, love the show, love the podcast, and hear you next time. Father Beast.
2: I'm so glad that true Quantum Leap fans are finding us. And it's really a nice perspective he has on the situation because he went through a head trauma and had a problem like that.
3: Yeah, I, I don't know. The only experience I have is getting pregnant and not being able to think as well. But that doesn't even compare to actually losing your any kind of ability.
2: Also, I think once you get married, you do get smarter because you have to, to survive. (laughs) You learn how to be a better person for your wife, I think.
3: Well, I think that if you marry the right person too, they they, they make you a better person.
2: I've gotten smarter since I've gotten married.
3: You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it sounds like you and your wife have a great relationship though. So I'm sure that she helped you. That's great that she even watched you get smarter over the years. Like that's that's awesome that whatever did happen during your accident was reversed, at least hopefully like all the way. But I can't even imagine And your emails you sound smarter than us. So. Very, very <laughs> intelligent. So uh, he's all better
2: now. He mentioned his favorite episodes were The Leap Back and Leaping of the Shrew with Brooke Shields.
3: I haven't seen either one of those yet. So. No,
2: they're good. They're very good. He didn't like Dreams. That's the second time we've heard that Dreams wasn't so good.
3: I haven't seen that one either.
2: I don't remember it, so maybe I haven't seen it. I'm not sure.
3: Maybe it wasn't your favorite either.
2: As for the music, I love the music of Quantum Leap, and I myself am waiting for it to come out on Blu-ray with a 5.1 mix, and when they do that, the dialogue is usually separate from the music tracks, and I myself might make a mixtape or a mixed CD out of the music tracks of Quantum Leap. I love the music of Quantum Leap, and I try to include them in the podcast here or there, just a little bit of it to give you a taste of how good it is. So hopefully, if you don't have the album already, you go get the album.
3: I sometimes do get disappointed by the soundtrack as compared to the show or movie, because it is usually different a little bit. But I agree with sometimes being disappointed in the the soundtrack.
2: Well, like I mentioned in our Facebook group, I have the CD, I own it, and I jam to it in my car every once in a while, really loud. (laughs) I just had
3: an image of you jamming in your car. (laughs) I
2: do it when people aren't looking. But it's good. It's good music. People are always looking, I'm sure. (laughs) And right now we're at the Mike Post era of Quantum Leap Music, and it does change in the future, but uh, I still like it then too. Thank you, Father Beast, for writing in, and uh, thank you for catching up to us. And it's great to have you aboard, and I look forward to your future emails. And thank you so much.
3: Yeah, it's awesome that you are liking our show, even despite yelling at your MP3 player. I'm glad that you have stuck around with us through our enlightening period. (laughs) So, And I'm glad that you and your wife get to connect with Quantum Leap, just like we get to connect with Quantum Leap. So that's really cool.
2: And when we asked on Facebook, Jimmy is one of the most loved episodes of Quantum Leap. What are your favorite parts or aspects of this episode? Adrian Salerno said, when Al told Sam about his sister Trudy, huge scene in the context of the whole series.
3: Tom Quinn said, exactly agree with Adrian. When Al tells us about Trudy, his whole character changes. Prior to this, he was a combination of comic relief with his five ex-wives with his lecherous asides about women mixed with being a deuce ex-machina. Solving the Problem of the Week, to showing us that he too has things in his past that might drive him to take part in a time travel experiment. We'll see the site again in episodes like M.I.A., A Leap for Lisa, and The Leap Home Part 2.
2: Andrew Carden said, Don really thought about revisiting the storyline about Trudy Calavici. That would have been nice to see, and maybe they could have saved her. Yeah. That's very sad.
3: Shauna Mayer said, My little sister is mentally retarded, so I really empathize with the older brother as Guardian and the fierce protective love he has for Jimmy.
2: Mac Jackson says, Big Al backstory. I love to see him so emotional.
3: Simon Claridge said, All of it.
2: I agree. (laughs) Yeah. Ashley Beck says, When everyone realizes Jimmy is a lot more than just a disabled person, the ending made me smile.
3: Adrian Salerno said, Also, Michael Madsen is in it. Great episode. He got the job. He got the job.
2: Great episode. He did get the job. Thank you, everybody, for your feedback.
3: And there are many ways to contact us. You can email us
2: at quantumleappodcast at gmail.com.
3: You can see our Facebook and answer all our questions on Facebook at facebook.com slash quantumleappodcast.
2: We are on Twitter at Quantum Leap pod.
3: We are on Instagram at quantumleappodcast.
2: And tag us in any post on Instagram you have that's related to Quantum Leap, like Chris Airwolf just did.
3: Yeah, we like looking at your Quantum Leap related pictures.
2: And it gets the word out about the podcast.
3: That's how we found Holly Fields, right?
2: Exactly. Instagram. Wonderful thing. You can leave a voicemail, and please do, at 707-847-6682. So please contact us with any and all comments and questions about Quantum Leap.
3: I think it's time for Hayden's segment.
2: Now we have a segment by Hayden McQueenie, all about Jimmy, and read by John Buchanan.
5: I've always said that Season 2 was the renaissance period of Quantum Leap, and it's easy to see why. With the status quo established, the writers now realized that they had to push the envelope, and so, on the most part, would be churning out one amazing episode after the other. Jimmy is a perfect example of this. Being of Generation Y, it is difficult to fathom a society's attitude towards neglecting the people who are in most need of attention, care, and rehabilitation, favoring instead to sweep them under the rug and dispose of them when their bodies break down. It is great that we are now at a point where the mentally disabled are mainstreamed and able to carry out their lives as progressive members of society. But we have to remember that this comes at a great cost, the number of lives lost and the families torn apart out of fear and ignorance, from not knowing how to deal with special people, nor wanting to. With the major issue out of the way now, what makes this a perfect episode to me is the strong emphasis it has on family. One of the reasons that I think this episode is so fan favorite is because aside from them having to adjust to having a mentally handicapped person living with them the lamadas feel like an average family just trying to live their lives it's easy to relate to and beautiful to watch seeing connie as a wife and mother the constant worry over her and her son's safety the family making ends meet with an extra person living with them and the fear of having to deal with jimmy causing a mishap connie was portrayed perfectly as a family matriarch it is obvious that she loves her family deeply and even though at times she came across as mean, the cold exterior she puts towards Jimmy was simply out of constant state of unrest. The really interesting thing about the LaMotta family is that it is one of few times in the series where we get to see the results of Sam's intervention. When he revisits the family in Deliver Us From Evil, what's astonishing is that when Sam returns, there is a complete role reversal. With Connie having more faith in Jimmy, pushing him to constantly better himself while Frank is the one who is more cautious about what Jimmy is capable of. Astonishing as it is, though, it makes perfect sense. Frank was completely right telling Sam to be careful around Connie until she gets used to him. And once he had earned a place in her heart, she ironically dedicated herself to becoming what she had earlier resented, becoming a surrogate mother. Studies have shown that a great deal of psychological damage happens when a person doesn't receive mothering in their infancy. And although we are told about Frank and Jimmy's mother, it's clear she wasn't in the picture while they were growing up. And so this may have contributed to Jimmy's total dependence on others to a point where their father had put Jimmy in an institution. When he had Connie as a mother figure to look up to, Jimmy actually gained the ability to look after himself. I find it a bit condescending that Jimmy is constantly looked upon as a child. Al says Jimmy has the IQ of a 12-year-old. Connie refers to him as a giant child after Sam loses his job when they're together. Frank calls Jimmy and Corey the kids, when this is juxtaposed against the fact that Jimmy's a grown man with a grown man's strength. It's easy to see why Connie would be afraid of someone getting hurt. Funnily enough, the only one who seems to have faith in Jimmy as an adult is Corey. It's clear that Jimmy and Corey have a bond that makes them close as brothers. This can be seen from how Corey interacts with Sam during their play, their chats, and stories before bed. And the fact that corey is willing to get into fights to defend jimmy perhaps the reason that corey has so much faith in jimmy is simply because he is the smallest member of the family so the only one who literally looks up to jimmy and having such great adult role models from his parents expects all those bigger than him to be more capable than him it's interesting that during the transitional stage of jimmy living with the family corey took on the role of older brother but when jimmy finds his feet a similar role reversal happens and jimmy ends up taking the role of the older brother being the one that Corey goes to for advice. No doubt this is contributing to by Sam saving his life and Corey realizing that he too can learn from Jimmy. While we're on the subject of brothers, Frank's devotion to Jimmy was something to be admired. Even though I wouldn't expect anything less today, in the time of this episode was set and having to deal with no support and everyone around criticizing, I agree with Sam when he said, if I was the one in the same situation, I don't know if I could handle it. One of the most difficult parts of the episode to watch was where Frank comes to the mistaken conclusion that Jimmy needs more care than he can provide. You can tell he was crying inside, and so was everyone watching. The crowning jewel of this episode, though, is Al's personal investment. When he talks about his sister, Trudy, it's obvious that he loves her deeply, and the pain of having put so much effort into protecting her during her childhood, only to ultimately have it be for nothing. Losing her from the negligence of those taking care of her is heartbreaking. It's really the first time Al has gone from a one-dimensional, lecherous sidekick providing comic relief to a three-dimensional man with feelings, pain, and events in his past that explain why he would want to be involved with a project to relive and change the past. We will see this more throughout the series in episodes such as M.I.A. and Leap for Lisa. There is a significant number of parallels between Frank's relationship with Jimmy and Al's relationship with Trudy. Ultimately, this leap stands out for Sam because of how it hits home for Al, and this lasts throughout the entire series. In fact, in the very surreal series finale, Mirror Image, the manifestation of Frank and Jimmy is significant because it is Sam associating something he has experienced to Al and his devotion to Trudy. Why is it important? All will be revealed in my analysis of Mirror Image. The final thing I want to talk about is this concept of mind merging. Throughout the series so far, it's been suggested that Sam retains a part of the leap, which might manifest itself throughout the leap, either as a help or a hindrance. I think so far, it is most prominent in this episode. Sam has never been depicted as overly clumsy or forgetful before, so it is quite likely that Sam did absorb a fair bit of Jimmy's mind. Is that the only thing that happened, though? I have to agree with Al when he tried to comfort a very frustrated Sam who felt like he couldn't do anything right, that it was a result of everybody treating Sam like a dummy. A great deal of a person's success depends on the expectations placed upon them. When you expect success, you breed success. And when you expect failure, you breed failure. A story that a friend of mine, Leaper One, retold illustrates this exactly. In brief, it was about a group of tiny frogs who decided to climb a skyscraper. Yeah, I know, but bear with me. They're set off and a crowd gathers to watch. The crowd starts yelling, they'll never make it. They'll all fall and they'll all be killed. It's impossible, Etc. Etc. Sure enough, one by one of the frogs slip off and plummet to the ground, except one who keeps going and gets to the top. When he gets there, a reporter meets him at the roof and asks how he could succeed when all the others failed. The frog puts his hand to his ear and says, what? I can't hear you, Sonny. Because he was deaf to negativity, he didn't give up. This illustrates the point exactly. When Sam was given a chance and not interrupted or fed anything negative, he was able to do something that nobody else could do, i.e. save Corey's life. In short, Jimmy is easily one of my favorite episodes of The Quantum Leap, probably only beaten by MIA and The Color of Truth, and is one I watch over and over simply because the story is so perfect. The family emphasis is beautiful, and it highlights an important issue, which is to provide as much support as possible for those who need it, as even they are capable of great things.
3: Always love to hear what hayden thinks about the episodes i i like his take on jimmy
2: we have some exciting news we are in the running for a geeky award that's so
3: cool it just sounds cool
2: you can go to the geeky to see everyone who's eligible
3: to win and uh it's pretty cool
2: it's uh nice to be up there with other great podcasts
3: yeah i feel like we're a part of a geeky community now even more so <laughs>
2: right next to us is the mission log and also the arkham sessions so that's pretty
3: cool It's cool to just be in the same anything as those podcasts. And it's really an honor
2: to be in the running. Also, some more exciting news. Have you heard of Patreon, Heather?
3: I just newly (laughs) have heard of Patreon. (laughs) We are
2: now on Patreon, which is kind of like a Kickstarter for artists, except instead of trying to reach a goal, people can donate or pledge a certain amount per episode, per piece of art. That's pretty cool. You can go to Patreon.com slash Quantum Leap Podcast, or just go to Patreon.com and start searching for Quantum Leap, and we come right up. And uh, the way it works is you can help us out here at the Quantum Leap Podcast by pledging a certain amount per episode, and they come out about twice a month. You can pledge as little as a dollar and as much as you want, and all the money goes towards helping cover the cost of the podcast needs.
3: Yeah, we do this for free, so any help that we get is very much appreciated. We're not looking to make
2: money at all, but one day if it didn't cost us money, that would be a great thing.
3: And we already have a patron. Tom Quinn actually posted on his Instagram and tagged a Senate that he has pledged $2.50 per episode.
2: Thank you so much.
3: Yeah. So it, as little as you want, as much as you want, it's a really cool way to support us and in our efforts to make an awesome podcast. Uh, There are certain things you can
2: get. If you pledge $5 or more, we will thank you by name on the next episode of the Quantum Leap podcast we produce. If you pledge $10 or more per episode, we will provide you all the updates that the crew gets so you get to see what it's like behind the curtain. If you pledge $25 or more per episode, we will provide you all the updates that the crew gets, we'll mention your name on the podcast, and we'll send you a one-time gift of a Quantum Leap podcast t-shirt.
3: They're pretty cool. Yeah. Albie is actually wearing one right now.
2: I am. It's on Inside Out, but it looks right in the mirror. (laughs) And we have a per episode milestone goal. If we reach $47 per episode, we will do another audio commentary for a fan-favorite episode.
3: That was fun to do. I hope we get to do another one. That'd
2: be great. But uh, that's, I'm sure, in the future. If we ever get there, that'd be something we can do to say thank you. So again, go to Patreon.com.
3: That is P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com.
2: And search for Quantum
3: Leap Podcast.
2: I feel like we're doing a fundraiser for PBS or something.
3: (laughs) Well, it is kind of a fundraiser, right? For the QLP instead of PBS. (laughs) No tote bag, just a t-shirt. Hey, the t-shirt is pretty cool. Yeah, what are you going to do with a tote bag? I have enough tote bags. Or an umbrella. (laughs) When's
2: the last time you used an umbrella? Heather, do you have some trivia?
3: I believe I do. So the Twinkie scene, apparently... Twinkies were not individually wrapped in 1964. And it was definitely an individually wrapped Twinkie. We even rewound it a couple times because I thought it looked like a double wrapped Twinkie and it's definitely not. So I guess that was kind of a a little boo-boo because in 1964, they did not come individually wrapped. A little bit of a timing error. You could only purchase them in a twin pack. Now you can just buy them by the box. And uh, the poster in Corey's room of the Mighty Thor was actually released in the late 80s basically when the show aired and not in 1964. So, oops.
2: I didn't notice that at first until I read this and then I could not notice it. It looks very modern compared to the rest of the episode.
3: And when Blue knocks the crates into the water, when Corey falls, I guess the crates are gone or the crate disappears for a while.
2: Yeah, it's there. It's being pushed. Then it's not there. Then it's underwater. So it's kind of, uh, maybe they jumped in time a little
3: bit. It's a little nitpicky. Yeah. It's there. I know I didn't mention this before, but the fact that there were no microwaves in 1964 is kind of a cool thing. And I like Corey's explanation. I know that that's not technically trivia, but I forgot to mention that earlier. Do you like Corey's explanation of microwave?
2: And that's how it works.
3: Right. But I just thought it was funny. And Sam should know 1964 no microwaves, right?
2: He's got a thing for microwave popcorn. Microwaves must have been really popular in
3: 1989. Were they new? Uh, No.
2: Okay. Still ridiculously expensive, though.
3: Um, another thing to bring up, Sam actually coins the phrase special people in this episode.
2: I like that. Special people. Thank you for the trivia, Heather.
3: There wasn't a lot this episode, but little tiny
2: details. Little things that you can't not see when you rewatch it again, again, again. Yeah. That about wraps it up for our take on Jimmy. I think it was a good episode.
3: I think we covered everything we wanted to cover. And you have two great interviews with the main characters of the episode. Come on.
2: That was the most exciting thing for me.
3: So what's next week's episode about?
2: Next time, Sam leaps into a defense attorney in the South, where he defends a young black woman named Delilah, Lila Berry, accused of murdering someone.
3: Is this kind of like the Quantum Leap take on To Kill a Mockingbird? Exactly. Hmm.
2: Delilah
4: Berry, you're accused of murdering Houston Palma Carter on the 15th of June, 1957. Murder? How do you plead? Guilty or not guilty? Not guilty. Why'd you do it? Because you're not guilty.
1: I never said that.
4: Your eyes did. All I knew about the law I got from watching a TV show whose name I couldn't even remember. This oh, is Perry Mason. That's it. Listen, I'm here to save Delilah Berry from the electric chair. Oh, we already ran that scenario. There's no problem. No? Nah, she pleads guilty to a lesser charge. Then she gets 20 years instead of the chair. That's probably before I pleaded her not guilty. What'd you do that for? Because she's not guilty.
3: I killed him, all right? How many times you going to make me say it? I killed him! I'm looking forward to this. I've actually read To Kill a Mockingbird and seen the movie. So if it's like that, um, I'm interested.
2: I remember this as being a very dramatic episode, so we should have something to talk about next time. Usually we do. (laughs) Until next time, I'm Albie. And
3: I'm Heather, and I think we're all special people.
5: Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Quantum Leap Podcast. Go to QuantumLeapPodcast.com to listen to new episodes. The Quantum Leap Podcast is not affiliated with Belisarius Productions or Universal TV. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter to get behind-the-scenes information, Exclusive content, and to be notified first when a new episode is available. The thoughts and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent or reflect those of the Quantum Leap podcast, Baron Space Productions, its partners or affiliates. The Quantum Leap podcast is edited by Albie and Juan, research by Juan, voice talent by John Buchanan. The Quantum Leap universe and all it contains is the property of Belisarius Productions and Universal TV. No infringement is intended. The Quantum Leap podcast is a Baron Space production.
3: With the prejudices that we have and i swear someone's pressure washing the side of our house like you don't hear that
2: a little funny thing that happens in this episode i think i mentioned while we were watching it is uh when sam leaps in he's in jimmy and jimmy's upside down doing what a lot of us did at that age trying to
3: really that's how you viewed that as <laughs> I just, I just,
2: it just looked funny like that
3: <laughs> i just thought he was like chilling upside down probably I didn't even think. Well, I'm not. A, I'm not a boy. I don't. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I, I just
2: thought. I was like, see, everybody does it.
3: You know, I'm sure our male listeners will probably agree with you. <laughs> As a girl, I, I, I don't know. I haven't been there. <laughs> I just thought he was like hanging out upside down. Um, speaking of the wharf scene at the end, was Michael Dorn in this? Ha! <laughs> I see what you did there. Um, hey, it's funny that he's that he can't say dis- dyslexic. Now I can't say it. <laughs> and as a
2: uh, viewer, you would hope that they would be just because you want their relationship to be like it was on TV 25 years ago.
3: Is there somebody in our garage robbing us? Good. Take it. <laughs> okay.
2: <laughs> but for real. I know. It's just out back that way. Somebody's turned on a house or
3: something. <laughs> like, really? You decide to f- tear down a house right now. Okay. I don't think you can do five seasons of a show of making right what once went. Wrong. Man,
2: <laughs> Try saying that again. I don't think. Okay, start again.
3: I don't think you can make five seasons of a show for what for making right what once went wrong. One more time. <laughs> for making right what once went wrong i need to say it to get it out
2: pause between each so i can
3: for making right what once went wrong that's almost close (laughs) for making right what once went i'm gonna say something else (laughs) i have only seen up into jimmy (laughs) up this episode standard example oh duh my thumb was covering being a deuce ex machina I don't know. Yeah. Solving the problem. Dot dot dot. Seymour. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Damn it, Seymour. What do we do?
3: <laughs> go we'll mention fa- him later. Go on the face, hold on, okay. woman. We even rewinded it. That's not a word. We'll it. So, what's next week's episode about? Well, next week, Sam. Or, well, does he? No. He's next episode. Holy four-hour episode. Oh, dude. <laughs> <laughs>
0: There is the theory of the Mobius, a twist in the fabric of space where time becomes a loop, time becomes a loop, time becomes a loop, time becomes a loop, time Time becomes becomes a loop. loop, time becomes a loop.